Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Alright, 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 all you ghouls of the void of the audience. Welcome to what I think will be the first of the 2020 Horror Vanguard Halloween Spooktacular. I am Ashley, one of your co-ghosts, joined as always by the one, the only, John, aka at the Lit Crit Guy. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, John. How are you doing? I am... I'm I'm on edge. I'm on edge, I think, is really the only way to describe it. I think we are in for just a real treat, frankly. This is gonna be this is gonna be an experience. prepare yourselves. That's that's all I have to say. <laughs> yeah, my uh my keepers brought me a single black crayon and I've been drawing crosses all over myself all day, so I think I'm ready for this. Yeah, I, but then again Who knows? Who knows what might happen? It's gonna get bad out there before it gets any better. That's that, that's true. That's true. And also, I've developed a strange cough, um, which may or may not be. I, I have been in the Arctic on an expedition for the last week, so maybe I picked up something while I was over there. That's. But hopefully, I'll be able to edit out all of those problems. I'm sure. Um, I'm I'm taking a big old sip of this drink that I have next to me. It's um. Oh yeah. It's it's uh, a, d- a really refreshing green goo that I found. Uh, like sealed in a basement, being guarded by an ancient order of warrior monks. Um, but it really does quench the thirst. Oh, so they have Mountain Dew in England now, do they? Uh, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I guess, I'm, I'm guessing that's what it is. I, I have been developing <laughs> uh, weird bruises. Um, that, oh, yeah, okay. But I'm sure that's fine. Very normal. Just Just the most normal things happening. Well, well, one thing, one thing from from drinking years of Mountain Dew here, and actually, I've I've barely had any Mountain Dew in my entire life because I find it repulsive. But <laughs> one a common common side effect of drinking too much Mountain Dew is you will start staring into a mirror and attempting to reach your demonic father. Um, so let me know if that starts happening. <laughs> just, just like me with my real dad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but there's a Prince of Darkness is like a really hard movie to watch because it like it like pushes all of of my weird idiosyncratic little buttons. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Welcome, friends. Uh, we're, we are we are attempting to do something which we have not yet done before on this show. We are talking today um, about a triptych of films produced by uh, directed and written mostly by arguably the best American horror filmmaker of the 20th century, John Carpenter. We're talking about the Apocalypse Trilogy. Um, settle in, because... Every every single film. All three of them. Buckle up. <laughs> um, twi- twi- Twitter thread emoji. Yeah. <laughs> Strap in, everybody. Uh, where would you like to begin? Well... I think I think it's going to be important to kind of begin our discussion of the Apocalypse Trilogy with something of like a thematic formalism zone. Discussing the Apocalypse Trilogy as a whole before we jump into each of the three pieces of this cinematic ensemble. So here is a question for you, Ash. Here's a question. Um, why did John Carpenter's films 
look so good for so long when they are made with so little money. This, I think, is one of the most impressing just kind of marks of Carpenter's career. And not just Carpenter, of course, but also all these special effects artists he regularly worked with, his wife who played a big role in a lot of these films. But I, I think I think what it comes down to is there's like, I mean, like to get poetic right off the bat, there's something of a cinematic honesty in Carpenter's work. There's a sense of moment and time and technology, right? These are the tools that he's making these films with. Um, that, that that kind of make them stand the test of time. You know, even like like all all of Carp almost all of Carpenter's movies. Um, there's a certain Martian film that we don't discuss. But um, no, yeah, most I've, of Carp- I've not heard of that one. I've not heard of that. It's fine. I've not heard of that one. We're 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 we're, we're going to pass on the greatest film Vin Diesel didn't get to star in. But like, I think a lot of these movies are just like they're incredibly competent. They're incredibly tight. The the Carpenter is always going for something compelling and interesting to say, whether or not he succeeds or fails. And and I think even even with Ghosts of Mars, right? Like, there's there's plenty of interesting things to discuss, and that's something that you can't say for everybody. What about you? Uh, yeah, I think, I think he's, he's just an incredibly gifted film director. He knows, I think the thing that Carpenter is really good at, um, is perspective and point of view. Uh, I think that's the thing that makes him such a uniquely gifted horror director. Um, Mm -hmm. because it's, you can, you can, you can, you can strip away a lot of the money. You can strip away a lot of the kind of extra resources, but he gets, really good performances out of his actors who are mostly kind of like jobbing, you know, just, just people who, people who are just pros, you know, who turn it, turn up, Mm -hmm. clock in, knock out, know their lines. He he tends not to work with like super big movie stars, um, but makes them into really big stars just because they're in his films. But his, his, his uh, direction of point of view particularly is, I think just, so so good and is so good at making there's a kind of participatory anthropology to to horror cinema generally right horror kind mm-hmm. of does things to, it kind of reaches out beyond the screen and the mastery of pov means that you get you get thrown into the world in a very immediate and very visceral way absolutely i i couldn't agree more and carpenter is and we're going i mean this is this is a 90-hour episode. We will be talking about whatever you think we will be talking about. But but Carpenter is is really using the form and format of of American uh, horror cinema to do this kind of like to do like historiography, right? Like like to really take apart and look at contemporary American moments. And, and there's something about these that the, his films have this documentary quality to them. So what do you think about kind of let's 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 talk about two of the two of the big hallmarks of carpenter on screen uh the use of practical effects and music what are some of your thoughts on these two things uh, i love the practical effects in all of these films they have a kind of real immediacy to them um we're going to be talking a lot about slime i think um <laughs> Oh, baby, we are talking about slime. (laughs) We're going to be talking a lot about slime. We're going to be talking a lot about goo, um, which is fine, obviously. Uh, But that is that that's the that's the thing about these practical effects. They're so well constructed. Uh, They they manage to have such kind of life um, and they are so 
deeply slimy and gross. Uh, you can't take your eyes off them. Um, what What about you? Um, so I have like, like I'm not one of those people that's like against computer graphics, right? Because I mean like George Miller, right? Mad Max Fury Road. Absolute mountains of computer special effects went into that movie. And it's just a visually beautiful film. You know, uh, same with like, you know, Jurassic Park. Tons of computer visual effects went into that movie. Still looks great today. Besides the first scene with the dinosaurs, which looks really bad. <laughs> but I will say that there is no replacing practical effects. You know, like like even even when like you, you do all the tricks to get your to get your computer graphics right. Like, you know, you want to CG in a fire. So you have like a key flame somewhere on set. So the VFX artist can work with that and expand it. Like, like nothing replaces the weight and body and presence of actually having a thing, pun intended, in the room with you while you're shooting. You know, get, getting getting real reactions to things moving around. Like, like in the MCU films, everybody always feels so stiff. And I think a huge part of that is because they're always on green screens and half of the characters they're interacting with are also green screened in. Which which means that you don't really have a sense of where you are, where you are, what you're looking at, what you're reacting to. So everyone kind of feels mechanical and and like a like a simulacra of humans interacting with things. It's uncanny. But but in Carpenter's movies, you know, like all of these giant goo monsters, these sacks of wet sopping goo flopping around everywhere. You get you get all of this stuff that you wouldn't be able to accomplish with CG. Just just how everything interactions with complicated interactions with lighting, eye movements with characters, the way that bodies react on sets when you have like a dog explode into a bunch of little wires and like oh, I, I could go on. It's just phenomenal, isn't it? And like, I think that that immediacy and the visceral the visceral nature of it is super important. Because again, all of that feeds back into perspective, right? The the idea that uh, ho- horror films rely upon that the the deliberate limitation of your point of view away from the kind of omniscient bird's eye view of things, and you you have to be placed within the scene, uh, and all of the the practical effects. And there are some uh, computer generated and digital photography effects in all of these films, I'm sure. Yep. Um, but they're never the dominant thing, right? And they leave these films feeling like, um, feeling so much more effective for so much longer. Like there's a reason that all three of these movies, even if the critics were not wild about them at the time, all of these films have now got like a massive cult following. Oh yeah. Like even, even I think it's safe to say that Prince of Darkness is probably the least popular and least critically acclaimed of the three. Maybe maybe Mouth of Madness, depending on who you ask and how you look at it. Definitely, they're both second to the thing. But I, I really think that all three of these movies are just phenomenal works of filmic genius. Is there anything else? Is there anything else? I think the themes of the formal qualities of Carpenter's work will come out more as we get into the details of each one. Um Oh yeah, definitely. And if you hear a dog barking in the back of my audio, um, this like, like a little husky just ran into my apartment. He he seems pretty spooked. I don't I don't know what's up with him. I'm gonna let him stay very physically close to me though, so he can feel comforted. I you know what I would too. And if there is like an angry Norwegian um outside of your apartment right now, try not to worry about it. Oh no! Oh no! Oh yeah! No, I shoot on sight 
whenever angry Norwegians land on my property with their angry Norwegian helicopter, I just, I don't know. It's, it's the American in me. We just shoot, shoot first, ask questions later. Uh, for some reason, all of the planes going over my house are extremely loud at the moment. Are you sure that's a plane, or is that a, is that another helicopter full of angry, angry Norwegians? They they found me. I don't know how, but they found me. <laughs> the Libyans wanted me to make a bomb, but I sent them pinball machine parts. <laughs> yes, listeners, we're talking about the fourth movie in the Carpenter Apocalypse forlogy. We're talking about Back to the Future. Um, no, 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 we're not doing that. That's not something that's going to happen. But we are going to talk about the Apocalypse trilogy. So let us begin. Let us begin our journey to the end of all things by starting with the first in the trilogy. Um, Yeah, by going back in time. Stop it. (laughs) Stop it or I will will close the the door to the podcasting bunker and I will (laughs) leave you in the snow. So help me God. Um, Would you mind explaining, Ash? Would you mind laying it out for us? John Carpenter's classic horror film, The Thing. What is it about? The alleged terror behind Carpenter's The Thing is the spread of the titular thing as a biological containment threat that, if it reaches populated areas, overcomes humanity within 27,000 hours. However, the real horror isn't the alien living virus beneath the ice. It's the collapsing ontology of what being human even means at the moment the film was made, and even more so today. It was estimated that the thing would take about three years to overtake humanity. It took COVID less than a year to reach every population on Earth. Our current formulation of society is very nearly post-containment in many unsettling ways. The thing crashed its UFO into the ice hundreds of thousands or millions of years ago, depending on which source you use. To the advantage of humanity, the ice is barren of much complex life and the thing laid dormant for thousands of years in its frozen hell. Our moment of environmental crisis means that the thing has years, weeks, moments from its freedom. There is another oncoming unknowability, a horror teased in the thing which is already in every home, every pocket, every ear. Chess wizards signaled the coming collapse of post-privacy. What this means for the subject is something we cannot yet say, and that, dear listeners, is the terror of the thing. From so many vectors, an apocalypse comes. A form of knowing is about to rend asunder what we expect, what we assume, what we believe to be the outline of the human. As Graham Harmon wrote in The Speculative Turn, colon, Continental Materialism and Realism, The world is not the world as manifested to humans. To think a reality beyond our thinking is not nonsense, but obligatory. Machinic or biological, the shape of a xeno-consciousness lingers in the corners of our moment. What will happen as our thoughts join to yours, as we discuss the first in Carpenter's Apocalypse trilogy, The Thing? Yes. All right. So I think I think one of the most compelling parts of the thing for me is when Marty McFly has to pretend to be a knockoff Dark Vader, Darth Vader in order to scare people. What do you think about that? Uh, I I think. (laughs) Okay, I'm done. I promise I'm done. I I think Horror Vanguard had a great run. Um, (laughs) And we're going to end it there, everybody. Uh, 
Our last episode will officially be Back to the Future. When it's time for the show to end, we will release the Back to the Future cut. Um, okay, should we should we start then? Should we start with the with the elephant in the room? Should we start with the the kind of obvious thing that we have to talk about when it comes to this film? I mean, you really you can't spell ooze without object oriented ontology. Uh no. <laughs> Okay, yes. so I know, I know, I know you were going to use this episode uh, uh, to, like a Norwegian strike force, take down the wild sled dog of Grand Harmon's speculative realism. Uh, yeah, I think it's. Um, so, do you want to? Do you want to kind of explain what what's what's what is ooh? What is object oriented? <laughs> what is object oriented ontology? What 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 are we referring to here? There's a lot, but but I think I think the basic nutshell of what object oriented ontology is attempting to accomplish is it's trying to reject the privileged position of uh, the Anthropos in philosophy, right? It's trying to unseat the human-centric way of viewing the world and bring in an attempt to theorize from other perspectives. I think that that's, that, would, that would be my... If I was in an elevator with the president of philosophy and I had to pitch object-oriented ontology, that's the one sentence I'd give. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how about you? How, how do you think? How do you think that 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 goes as far as a quick summation? Yeah. So uh, the big perhaps pro- I'm being a little bit generous. <laughs> no, no, no. The big so the big problem the big problem in ooh or in speculative realism, which is an, a name that was kind of thrown onto like three or four uh, loosely similar philosophers when they first started kind of yeah. publishing, uh, is the problem of correlationism, right? Which is this idea of like uh, is the object distinct from the subject you know can we think can we think the world without ourselves um which is a really important question to ask but it has huge amounts of really negative i think philosophical and political consequences mm-hmm. so, so like the thing is a gold mine for this kind of film because Oh yeah, uh, is a goldmine as a film is a goldmine for this kind of philosophy because it disrupts the kind of like normative boundaries of what objects are and what they're supposed to be. Right, that's the entire point of this creature is that it is uh, it is decidedly non-human and behaves in non-human ways. So it poses this kind of ontological question of like, well, what does it mean to even be? What is the thing? Yes. Um, but I don't think I don't think. Um, Ooh, has any real chance of kind of giving you a decent philosophical answer to that question, primarily because object-oriented ontology is interested in what it calls a flat ontology, right? You get rid of the, hi- the hierarchy of objects where you have humans as this kind of special category and you have everything else. And really what that replaces any kind of like philosophical ontology of existence with is sort of like philosophical bureaucracy where all you have are kind of like lists of stuff. And it's it's kind of impossible to to say is there such a thing as a good object? No, because good implies a kind of mediator that gives you some sort of value. Um, it's it's all of these objects kind of rec- Harmon talks about objects receding away from us, right? Mm-hmm. So you have this kind of like flat plane of empty existence where the only thing you can do is kind of like exhaustively catalog, but. The whole point, the whole point of the thing really is not that it is disturbingly anti-human. The whole problem is that it's disturbingly human. 
So the big philosophical problems with ooh is it has no uh, it has no politics really. Object oriented ontology is not really able to talk about political problems, and it has no philosophy of language, which is the way in which humans kind of catalog and organize our relation to the other objects within which we are enmeshed. So, uh, I, it, 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 it has an important, there's an important problem here of like, how do we understand the non-human? But I don't know, mm-hmm. I don't know how close speculative realism can get us to a decent answer. Go off King. Yes. Oh my God. The whole time, the whole time you're, 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 you're delivering this blazing salvo uh, to, to the uh, uh, Twitter Twitter account of Graham Harmon. Uh, I love what we do on this show so fucking much. <laughs> oh, God. These are the conversations I wish I could have every moment of every day. It's absolutely fantastic. Like, you, the object-oriented ontology is trying to democratize ontology, right? But it's the equality of capitalism, right? Or... The, the thing that people in uh, used to say quite a lot is like all things exist equally, but not thing or not all things exist in the, in the same way or something like that, which I'm like, I don't really buy this. I'm not, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't really, I don't really buy this at all. Um, there is, there is, there is a, there is a, there is a, there is a problem. They're right, right? How do you how do you understand? Yes, how do you how do you decenter? But like they're they're referring, or I think they're like the problem is like we have to if you're going to construct an ontology, who are you constructing it for? It has to be constructed for a subject, mm-hmm. and if and if you don't think that human subjects are really all that different from other kinds of objects that exist, then what on earth are you even doing philosophy for? <laughs> oh my god okay so the the first the first real like hv theory point of our carpenter apocalypse trilogy has gone so fucking hard so my 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 overall point the kind of big problem here is uh to agree that actually the thing is really useful as a way of de-anthropocizing de-anthro removing the anthros from a uh, from a kind of model of ontology, but really the problem I think that it dislodges most effectively is the Cartesian idea of ontology. Right, that's what the thing gets rid of. It gets rid of like the the secured subjects, but that isn't the same thing as as a kind of completely flat ontology. I have loved I've loved this spirited rant so much, um, and I think I think a lot of so a lot of the points that you're making here I completely agree with. Right, as a fan of of triple o and speculative realism and when i say a fan i mean as someone who regularly uses these philosophical frameworks for my own media criticism and analysis i i agree with this kind of inherent precept that like if you're if you're kind of if you're cooking in the philosophy kitchen you're cooking for someone right like and furthermore there's a bit of a deep-seated problem here which is attempting to theorize from the perspective of something else and deceit the the human-centered, privileged position in philosophy can run the risk of reinserting the exact same thing you're trying to unseat by replacing it with the human imagination, rather than just a given human subject. Yeah, I mean, I, humans are different. Humans are different from a lot of the objects that exist in the world. But this, this is not the same thing as saying that you know that that's that that should simply be a given. Mostly because humans 
uh, our enmeshment with the objects of the world around us doesn't necessarily doesn't have to doesn't demand the kind of like hierarchical ontology or hierarchical relationship right oh yeah yeah totally and so i think i think a great way uh, uh before before we become the uh i don't i was about to say graham Harmon vanguard but that's probably not 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 the podcast name we'd want to go with the the speculative vanguard uh, I think a good way a good way to talk about this is to talk about the thing in and of itself, uh, uh, the the alien, the monster, the virus, the contagion that is the thing, what it is, and kind of how it came to be on the Earth. Because I think that that will allow us to kind of flesh out a a decidedly political utilization of these kind of speculative realist as well as other philosophical points. So let's, 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 let's jump into the let, thing. Let's do it because I think that's exactly what, um, and that's, that's just to be clear. That's a point I extremely agree with. That's right. Like, like speculative realism and triple O need their fangs and those fangs need to be political. Yeah. And those I, fangs can burst forth from your chest. Uh, I mean, this is the point, right? I don't think triple O, um, can let you make that kind of judgment, right? What what is the thing? Well, it's 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 the same kind of thing as every other thing, right? It just manifests itself to our sensuous reality in a very particular way. That's a very unsatisfying answer. Let's let's then let's then attempt to find some satisfying answers in 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 the shape of the thing. And I think we have to ask the, a very important question related to all of these philosophical conversations. What is das Ding? But um, tsh, I well, had to get that pun in at least once. Uh, everybody thinks everybody. The kind of common argument is is this externality that's appeared in our reality, or or to put it like to put it like Fisher's terms, it's like the outside coming in, right? That's what the thing is. Mm-hmm. But I actually think, and I think this is a much more interesting idea if you look at it in the totality of the film as a whole, is to think of it as an internality getting out. You can. T- it, it's a kind of it's an ontological and epistemological knot, right? And you can you can either go well oh this means that somehow our our previously coherent systems of ontology and epistemology need to be revised or rewritten, or you can go actually those knots are built into the foundations of being and knowledge itself, right? It literally comes out of the earth. It literally mm-hmm. melts, you know. It literally melts into being beneath our feet because of like. Uh, struggles over land ownership and American imperialism, right? It is, it is an internality. It isn't, it isn't an externality. It's not something that's come from the outside in. It's something that's in getting out. And we're going to talk about this a lot at the, towards the end of the thing section, when we start talking about the kind of uh, uh, representations of things, especially in Peter Watts's short story, um, but I think I think one of the things I kind of want to do is something we don't do very often on this show, and that's that's kind of run through the fan theories and, and fan speculation about what the thing is, because I do think that there, there, there's some kind of useful political discourse to be had here in trying to find out where the thing comes from, both on a philosophical layer as kind of a piece of fictive content emerging from the human as well as a being of in its own right inside of its fictitious universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first thing, the first thing uh, I'm going to rank these in order from kind of like most accepted fan theories all the way down to the least <laughs> accepted fan. We're becoming a completely different podcast right now. Um, so a common interpretation of the thing, right? The first thing we see in the thing movie, of course, is the UFO crashing to Earth. 
Right. Um, you know, we, we know that the thing has some kind of Xeno origin. It comes from space. Um, or probably comes from space. That is something we can, we can get to, to address your point earlier. We don't exactly know that the thing comes from space. Uh, we just can interpret it using the Kuleshov effect. <laughs> but like the main idea is that like the thing is a virus, right? That it somehow infected the pilots of this ship and, and caused and precipitated this crash landing. Uh, then we have another theory that suggests that the thing as an organism was a stowaway. It was, it was hiding on this ship and then was eventually discovered, which precipitates the crash. Then there's also a, a theory that the ship was a medical transport, uh, uh, carrying someone infected with the thing to get treatment. There's also the idea that the thing was the pilot of the ship. This was the thing's ship. And then through some kind of mechanical failure, the ship did crash. Um, let's, let's discuss. Let's discuss what these potentials have to do with the events in this film and how we read them through a decidedly political philosophical lens. Well, I think all of them, all of them are doing things that object-oriented ontology would not approve of, right? Which is, which is, re which is defining it in relation to ourselves. Right, this idea of like, oh well, it would it was performing a function that that we would identify. Like it was a pilot. It was a, those are those are human concepts, right? Just as you think you're getting out of correlationism, you're back in the correlationist mirror. Yeah, which is why I think it's more interesting to say that none of those are wrong. All of them are kind of held up by the film, but they're not necessarily. They don't kind of like take you anywhere. And in fact, they kind of reduce the complexity of the film. Um in some ways, which I think to, 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 to let that hold and be coherent, you have to kind of take later stuff out. Yeah. What I find interesting about all, all of these series, one of the, one of the things that I find really interesting is kind of the imposed hierarchy of acceptance that's within these, like, like the, the most accepted interpretation of the thing is that it's some kind of space born virus and it, and it caused the UFO to crash and now it's going to infect the earth. And that's how the apocalypse comes about. Uh, and that, I think, fits fits into political theorizations and political formulations in kind of a really unsettling way, right? It's it's inherently seeing the other as something that must be expunged. It's, it's, it's the inherent th threat of the unknown as it contacts ourselves. And then we, when you get to the other side of things, right? Like, like kind of the least accepted fan theory... <laughs> about the origins of the thing is that the thing is, is is a pilot that the thing was the original pilot of that ufo that it was out in space doing its own thing and some mechanical failure caused it to crash to earth and now it's trying to just go home that the thing is in a sense a visually frightening version of et who i guess is already a little visually frightening but way less scary than the thing i think we can all agree on and what I find interesting about that is because I believe you're right, right? We're, we're ultimately charting these things based on known human terms, right? Because that's kind of all we have from a philosophical standpoint. There's kind of like, you know, like this, this is one of the classic problems, right? Is there an out? So it's not, can we get out? It's just that, is there even an outside? But what I will say is that viewing the thing as a virus that must be exterminated and that something that has always been wicked and, and cruel plays into a lot of anthropocentric worldviews that are especially troubling when we look at how we also use those terms for the people that we other as well as the environment. Viewing the thing as a life form that has its own needs, its own directions, and something that exists in like 
some some kind of cosmic balance with life on a greater scale, which is something, again, like I keep teasing, we're going to be talking about that Watts short story, but I think it's very useful. Um, but I think that, that that does question a little bit of what I would say is a very accepted, a very tamed, and a very calm anthropocentric worldview, which is one of the the best things about the thing as a monster, right? Like, you know, like we were talking about in the beginning, the whole point of the thing is to like, like literally dissolve the concept of a boundary. I mean, I, this is why I think a kind of Freudian or, or psychoanalytic idea is much more interesting in reading this film. Um, you know, that, that's ding, the, that's S, the it. You know, this... <clears throat> There is, there is something, there's something kind of down there in the ice on a subjective level, right? If you really turn your gaze inwards, you find the thing, this hypermobile, uh, violent force that's capable of like transforming itself into something new is, um, it, it's very Freudian. It's very psychoanalytic. And like broadly, the big problem with these fan theories is the way that they kind of like see the film as this kind of structural puzzle that has to kind of like all of point point a has to correlate to point b to point c and what you do is you end up kind of like hermeneutically sealing the lid of the film on top of it like i think all of those fan theories and i think that, that sort of approach to, to art criticism basically turns interpretation into a mausoleum <laughs> i love that interpretation yeah, I think I think maybe maybe I don't go as hard as as you do against it because I, I think that you're absolutely right. If we're trying to use these to solve the film, we we are we are going to hermetically seal the thing into a palatable, digestible, acceptable thing, no matter what we pick. Yeah. Right. No matter which option we choose, if you if you decide if you play the game of choosing one, you kind of destroy the thing. The only way to destroy the thing is is to buy a thing Funko Pop and then make it this kind of artifact of pop detritus and nothing more. I, but what I find to be interesting in, in this kind of potential, these objects is one or many of them can be true in addition to options we haven't considered, in addition to options we cannot consider because they contain factors that we legitimately do not even begin to understand. And that for me is what makes the thing interesting because it's not just that the thing creates these simulacras of bodies in, and kind of dissolves physical boundaries, but it's also doing it with cognition as well, right? It's also doing it with interpretive frameworks. You know, like I, I think the, the way to approach the thing is to kind of like to let it be, to let it, to let it do its creepy gooey thing to your mind and, and accept the kind of open set of potentialities that exist within the thing and then start the discussion from that point. Rather than trying to pin it down and lock it down, each of these different like fan theories is interesting and has its own interesting discussions. But to canonize one would be to destroy the thing. I mean, yeah, precisely, precisely, um, and and really, it misses a lot of what the film is about, right? If you go, well, it's about an out, it's about an outsider that has to be fought. That would change. That would necessarily change the whole dynamics of the film, right? This is not a film about an external enemy that has to be destroyed. This is about. This is a film that's about paranoia. 
right? And you're not paranoid about the thing that's out there. You're paranoid about the thing that is internal to yourself, right? In fact, the whole film is about this attempt to reinforce that epistemic certainty, right? The whole film is about the complete failure of the fan theories to understand the film itself. Hell yeah. And I think this is this is such an important thing to kind of flesh out, you know, to, to look at the limitations of this way of approaching media. Right, right. You know, because there, there is that, I, I think, kind of natural hegemonic impulse to seal uncertain things away and to bind them and to give them fixed known properties that force us to look at them from certain perspectives and only those perspectives. And I think the beauty of the thing is that it's naturally resistant to that. Because if you take the standpoint of, oh, the thing is just a virus, it's it's just going to devour people and try and spread across the world. Uh, viruses don't build UFOs. You know, like they just don't have the biological capacity to store that kind of information, right? Like that that severely troubles that interpretation, right? Like the thing, no matter which option you pick, the thing as a text is going to push against you. And I think that succumbing to one worldview, especially worldviews that would like, I, I guess, prioritize the kind of like settler colonial impulse of like, oh, we're blazing new land and, and setting up our research stations as the forerunner for colonialism. Oh no, there's the other time to fight. Like, I think that any, any of the interpretive frameworks that prioritize that standpoint wind up reifying some things I'd rather not be reifying while yeah, I'm petting I mean, this, this husky is, that's still next to me. This is why I think, like, it's much more interesting to think in terms of, like, either in terms of those internal psychological dynamics and psychoanalytic dynamic, dynamics, or to think about panpsychism. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, would you want to talk really quickly about panpsychism and the real horror of Chess Wizard? Yeah, I mean, panpsychism is the, <laughs> is the, is the philosophical idea that all matter has a kind of consciousness as an emergent property of its nature. Um, yeah. And if that's the case, should we talk about the very saddest death in the, in, in the film? We, we need to talk about the tragedy of Chess Wizard, yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, the very first death in the film is McCready is playing chess on an Apple II computer using the Chess Wizard program. Um, it's actually a, like all of this stuff is kind of like a weird mock-up because they couldn't actually film the screen of the Chess Wizard game. So they had to like recreate a bunch of things and recreate the voice and like... Uh, so, so it's actually a simulacra of Chess Wizard, which I think is really interesting, right? It's already we're already doing the thing, but on a technological level. Um, and he can't he can't win. He's not winning. So he pours his he pours his booze on the Apple II computer, thereby killing killing the saintly Chess Wizard who was just there to teach him an exciting and wonderful game. R.I.P. R.I.P. Chess Wizard. Real, real king of the show, Chess Wizard. But I think Chess Wizard opens the door to a lot of interesting conversations, right? Because, like, Chess Wizard is kind of the benign forerunner of the nightmare we live in today, right? Like, we're in, we're in a societal moment where we are almost essentially post-privacy. Like, it's, it's becoming harder than ever in human history to have a secret and keep it. You, you know, like, like re recording anything, like, like something people don't know about Twitter, right? When you delete your tweets or when you delete your DM, they still exist. They, they exist server side. Twitter keeps everything, you, you know, like Twitter doesn't expunge willingly. It, it, it hosts and harvests and collects and correlates your information. 
right? It, it is, in a way, the frightening implication of the thing on a level for cognition and information. And I think that Chess Wizard is such an interesting appearance in this movie because, like, what what winds up becoming the the horrifying force that invades and dissolves any kind of stable sense of a positive boundary in our lived world? It's not some virus from space, but it's it's what Chess Wizard ultimately it's what the Apple II computer ultimately winds up becoming in twenty twenty two. Which raises the the question more broadly then of the kind of social dynamics of this film. Um, and, and what we might call, uh, political slime. Uh, yeah, poly slime. This is, (laughs) this is not, this is like any kind of social dynamic has a, has a kind of politics to it. And this little research station, they choose a new leader at a certain point. Uh, and the, the slime is a disruption to both spatial and political organization, I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts about that? Oh, gee, thoughts about slime. I don't know if I have any. I'm just kidding. A bunch of goo falls on me like it's Nickelodeon in the 90s. Um, I, I think I think the slime the slime here is really interesting. And again, like to to evoke, I think, an excellent usage of triple O and speculative realism, but like slime and also like Freudian Freudian analysis, there's everything in slime. Slime is fun. Um, but but like slime is in an interesting position in, in terms of the human, right? Our, our bodies are kind of like mostly slime by weight, different kinds of slime and ooze. And this is something we've talked about on the show before, but like, you know, like if I said, oh, I'm just dripping with goo, that has a lot of negative connotations, right? Whereas if you say like, oh, I'm sweating, right? Like that might have a few negative connotations, but not nearly on the same plane. When the meaningful difference between the two is, you know, how, oh, what is the word I'm searching for? The the viscosity of the liquid, right? And, And I think the thing really punches this straight to the foreground, right? Because we don't see ourselves as slime, we see ourselves as something greater, something better, something more just and righteous and useful. We, we see ourselves as naturally inheriting every positive descriptor that you wouldn't give to goo. And the thing, the thing reminds us very literally through its practical effects, which I think are really important here, that we are just goo. We're just goo in different states, goo at different moments. And, and the thing recenters that, right? Like, ugh. There's, there's, there's so much to get into here. I'm going to pass the mic to, to you. The, the husky just ran away. I'm not sure what's happening. Well, this is precisely why I think it's important to think about the thing in relation to the human. Um, you know, and you see this in a practical sense. All of those, the practical visual effects, like the, the, the spider head, the, the, the chest uh, cavity that opens up and bites off the doctor's hands is is a reminder that the human subject is this interstitial, fluidic thing. You know, it, we, pre- we present ourselves as something, but under the surface we are this teeming mass of subjectivity that can constantly emerge into new forms. So it's like the, 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 the practical formal elements of the film directly reinforce this philosophical idea. So let's let's get into then some some specific goo based explorations of 
the thing and the ooze that kind of fills this movie and fills the space of our discourse. Because I know there were a few a few goo related things you wanted to talk about specifically. Uh, yeah, I. Uh, well, as I brought it up with the visual effects, the practical effects, the way that the way that you know beneath the surface, what are we? We're all the thing. Mm-hmm. Just as you pointed pointed out, we just don't want to admit it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that's really interesting to see is approaches to containment and disease, especially in our current moment. The thing, the thing is still incredibly relevant, right? I mean, we, we you know, like COVID, of course, there's a lot to discuss there, as I brought up in the pre But I think another thing worth bringing up right now is monkeypox, uh, uh, right? Or, you know, the, the latest craze in viral pathogens sweeping a nation near you. Uh, and what, what I find to be really interesting is like we can kind of compare and contrast responses to, to the viral, to oozes and goos and the, and, and the thing and in lived reality with monkeypox. You know, what's what's the social response to monkeypox? It's not like, oh, there's clearly some horrible biological contagion running around. We need to distribute a vaccine, provide effective information on how people can stay safe and, and kind of, you know, effectively put a lid on this goo. What is instead happening is we're we're launching into a new era of homophobia, a la the start of the AIDS crisis, and attempting it to excise this thing as the other, rather than accepting that you no, know, the monkeypox is now a part of human reality. You can't excise it. You can't wish it away. It's it's already here and it's already in us. And this kind of like like I always think about, I think a lot about the scene where Macready is testing everyone's blood. Mm, yeah, definitely. You know, and like, 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 there's a lot to read into that scene about like testing blood, blood diseases, homophobia, AIDS. Like, also, like, there's like racial politics at, at play there. And, and I think something that is often overlooked is like, how do we get to that point? You know, how do we get to the point where like McCready has like a fistful of dynamite and a flamethrower and he's threatening to kill everyone? And, and that's because instead of taking an approach that goes like, okay, there's some kind of biological contamination going on. All of us are potential targets for this infection. We need to test who's infected. We need to stay together. We need to figure this out. They immediately jettison that and instead go and try and find a way to excise it into some kind of com- comfortable other. They start subdividing politically. They start creating new castes. And, and it kind of becomes this, this little microcosm of how we've been approaching these events on a larger scale. I mean, I, this is McCready's famous line, right? Uh, nobody, nobody trusts anybody anymore. Mm-hmm. We're all very tired, and of course, like the political context here is is pretty clear. You know, the end of Cold, yep. War, Cold War paranoia. This idea that there is no such thing as value neutral existence, right? Mm-hmm. Like he, he's he's very he's very what's it? Um, it's very Schmittian, right? He's He's the sovereign. He's he's dividing out, uh, and it gets done at increase. It gets done on the on the molecular level, right? Yeah. That's how deeply trust has disappeared. It's disappeared down to the very level of the molecule. Oh, that is such a good reading. That is such a good reading. If this was a bonus episode, that right there would be the clip. <laughs> Um, so I think like we, we, your point about the Cold War, I think is really prescient, um, mainly because we're starting a new one right now uh, between our, our respective countries, not between our respective countries, but our respective countries are starting a new one right now with new Cold War targets. Um, but, you know, that has a lot to play with both McCready's character as a military man 
and the kind of presence of the Antarctic in a larger geopolitical situation as it relates to the thing, right? And I think this is a this is something we could talk about more about. This is kind of like a classic reading. And this goes back to the original thing as well, because this movie is technically a remake, um, even though everyone has forgotten the first thing, which itself was an adaptation of a short story, which was also a book because there was an unfinished draft, but I'm getting a little convoluted. Um, so what are, what are some of your thoughts about the politics at work here in terms of the Cold War and the uh, Antarctic setting specifically? Well, uh, McCready is supposed to, I, I think it's cut from the film, but isn't McCready supposed to be a veteran? I think so. Um, he he, re- he reads as that character in any event, like a like a traumatized military vet. There's there's even this idea that where he says that he's a real light sleeper, right? He, yeah. He he drinks very heavily, doesn't sleep. He doesn't. He he's very very. Um, he's fine with violence, uh, and it's like the the U.S. military is a machine for producing like alienated and very angry people. Uh, like just, just bracket for a, bracketing for a second, all of the horrific violence that that machine exerts externally. What it also does mm-hmm. is it kind of destroys people, uh, uh, both mentally and physically. Um, and so McCready is, McCready is a kind of good example in the microcosm, but on the macro level, like why are they, why are they there? Why are the, that's the question of like why is this research station there, and and how do how do we understand that in relation to the Antarctic Treaty that was signed in the mid fifties? Mm-hmm. The I think it's eight different nations that believe they have claim to the land of the Antarctic. Uh, so you have this combination of militarism, um, colonialism, or rather kind of like imperial imperialism, and watching it now, you can't help but think about like climate catastrophe all of those things are happening in the kind of political substrata so one thing one thing i think is worth talking about is peter watts's short story the things even though i don't particularly like the writing of it i think it is trying to do something interesting in terms of the thing more broadly as as kind of a character because there's a lot of like failed thing media you know there's a canceled tv show there's the remake there's the, the there's the i think the tv show was the prequel and there's bound to be another thing at some point in our lifetimes unless Hollywood collapses. Um, and so the, the whole point of the things, the short story, is it's the events of the thing from the perspective of the thing. And and kind of the main conclusion and, and the main takeaway is that all life in the universe is goo. Uh, everywhere outside of this little rock of ours, the thing is the kind of bog standard. Life can freely associate with other life. You know, your your physical being can just intermesh with all other physical beings. There there isn't a meaningful physical boundary between life forms. And that's kind of the that's the status quo of the universe. And we're the weird exception. We're the weird exception where like the the, the short story is really interesting because the thing is horrified as it discovers humanity. It, it experiences cosmic horror as it encounters us because we're all individual consciousnesses imprisoned in a skull. We have a little rock cavern that we're forever damned to be inside of and never can we leave it. And the thing is terrified of that because it's come from a universe that's populated with organisms that can just freely slide in and out of each other. Yeah, exactly. It's this idea of like uh, a mode of existence which has overcome the essential kind of like trauma of human subjectivity, you know, our, 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 self, yeah. our self-separation and ultimate alienation from one another, the, the, the divide, the chasm between 
subject and object which you can't get round. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's how it's, but, it's, but, it's an interesting little short story for the philosophy alone. Yeah, the final point I would make about it is that assimilation or, or association is association is not assimilation. Yeah. Or, rather, or rather, it's being with, with differentiation. Absolutely. There's something deeply anarchic about that kind of it's it's like it's like an anarchistic utopian vision of life life in the stars you retain distinction you you retain a sense of individuality but you you lose the crushing boundary that is the self other distinction So one thing, one thing that I really wanted to talk about as we start to wind towards the end of this section of our Apocalypse Triptych Trilogy party time. Uh, so so this, this movie has one of my activation phrases, and then that's they start talking about Chariot of the Gods. Um, which, uh, so quick, quick summary for everyone playing the home game, Chariot of the Gods is a book that later becomes a movie that uh, is is the first kind of theorization of the idea that uh, ain't, it's the ancient aliens thing, right? It's that aliens are the reason why the Egyptians could build the pyramids and the Incans could build their structures, et cetera, and so forth. Incredibly racist, incredibly colonialist uh, a reduction of quote-unquote non-Western peoples to, to just NPCs in the story of history. But I think like, it's really interesting to to bring up in the context of this because Chariot of the Gods exists because of H.P. Lovecraft. Lovecraft was literally the first guy who who kind of like formally introduced to the world the idea that aliens came to Earth and kind of set up ancient civilization. And I think that the thing is a very Lovecraftian movie, right? Like like it has a lot of Lovecraft's tropes and elements. The setting especially is deeply Lovecraftian. But for the for the only specific like they, they at no point in the thing do they hurl a copy of at the mountains of madness at the thing right like this is the 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 nod to HPL is his kind of like legacy of colonialist racist space terror and I think that 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 really should inform a chunk of how we look at the thing right part part of the movie is directly referencing this this way of appraising forces from space. In, in fictive cinema and the way that that can bleed into reality and become like people really do believe in that stuff and it was just hpl writing about spoopy squid men from space um i really like this idea that it's a very lovecraftian film and i think we will absolutely have to come back to lovecraft as we move through the trilogy um but as we start to wrap this up should we talk about the ending Yes, let's do it. So, so what are you? Let's let's talk about is is Macready a thing or not? <laughs> I don't care, and I think it's a really boring yep. question to ask. It, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> um, and they hated and they hated them because they were right. <laughs> because if we're right, if we're right that this is a film that's fundamentally about epistemological crisis. You can't uh, you can't externalize that. Like this yep. is this is this is almost a, Der- a Deridian point, right? That you you're trying to externalize it through the means by which that instability exists in the first place. 
yeah. right? You go, oh, well, we just need better language. We just need better categories. But no, the instability is in the language and categories, right? Oh, we just need a better test to determine who the true person is. No, the instability is is in the testing mechanism itself because that's part of what it means to be like subjectivity is riven all the way down by this kind of like point of fracture um you know we do not know who we are we are the like the subject is barred to itself right we don't have access to the truth of the thing primarily because access to it would be far too traumatic for us to cope with and we externalize it away from ourselves to ensure our own subjective coherence that comes out in the most kind of violent of ways, right? McCready's ultimate answer of like, let's just sit here and see what happens for a bit is maybe the only good ending for this film to have, right? Oh, I, I totally agree, right? Because that that's the ending that we should kind of internalize and work with. Y- y- you know, like like e- even, even at the end of all of this violence, McCready is just like, okay, well, let's let's just sit for a bit let's it's the first time in the movie that someone is like okay we should slow down yeah the right? first, we the should, first we should time accelerate the first time someone has done exactly what you said people should do which is just let it be yeah or just just take a moment <laughs> to, to slow the machine down because at no point up to this do they actually try and interrogate what's happening around them they just keep responding it's a, it's a very very in a very literal sense and kind of a very philosophical sense. It's a deeply reactionary course of events. You know, people simply just react to external stimuli like their chemicals in a petri dish, or thing blood in a petri dish. And I think one of the things that's really interesting is that you know, like because you see people like do stuff where like oh like when you watch the final scene, M- McCready doesn't blink and the things never blink. Even though, like, what, what is what is that? That's like this weird testing that we're, we're recreating the blood test now. Or they'll, they'll be like, you know, because the way it's shot, the firelight is in McCready's eyes. And it, and it looks like the way that cat's eyes are at night because they have that extra reflective layer in there. And, like, they're like, oh, that means that means he's a thing because that's the dogs have that too. So that's the dog DNA. He hasn't completely restructured as a human. And, like, all of that misses the point entirely. All of that is is re, is inserting ourselves as viewers of this media. And this is something that I think happens in all of these films and is really important about all three of them, is that through the creation of these movies, by attempting to theorize our way out of the end of them, we stick ourselves into the movie. We, we stick ourselves into that Antarctic research station and may, may or may not be a thing. When we, when we attempt to go like, oh, is McCready one of them? Did he, did he get infected at some point? You know, we we lodge ourselves into kind of like this negative hermeneutics that's going on here rather than doing the thing that doing the thing that happens at the end of all three of these movies where someone is like a cycle is being perpetuated here. I need to slam the fucking brakes on that cycle, regardless of the consequences for me personally. I I, I, I couldn't I couldn't put it any better. I couldn't put it any better. What a place to what a place to conclude part one. If you're worried about me. If we've got any surprises for each other, I don't think we're in much shape to do anything about it. Well, what do we do? Why don't we just wait here for a little while? See what happens.
Well, he doesn't even seem to be human. Yeah, yeah. I, I got into podcasting because I don't I don't get to talk enough about queer slime in my my day to day life. So, well, that's that's why we're here today. I have there's a, here's a happy coincidence for you, my friend, because. <laughs> yeah, what's that? Let's talk about Prince of Darkness, shall, shall we? Oh, let's do it. The only monarch I trust. Uh, the the only the only monarch I respect is the Prince of Darkness, uh, because <laughs> because because like me, he doesn't get on with his dad. Like me, he loves abandoned churches. <laughs> it's time for us to talk about the second film in the Apocalypse trilogy. And so, as with all of our films, uh, I would invite you. Me and everyone else listening to to gather round, gather round your intricate podcast listening devices with your friends and family. <laughs> As your friend of mine, uh, Ash, co-host of the show, explains to us what John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness is all about. I can quite easily become hypnotized by the theoretical conversations in a film like Prince of Darkness. It's got time travel, sentient ooze, and somewhere between three to five unbroken monologues about ontology and hermeneutics. This should be as close to the sensation of being in a candy store as I expected as a child, but it's, it's not. It's hard not to see the Catholic Church, the American state, and the university apparatus aiding and abetting the AIDS crisis in this film. While no characters are outwardly gay, even a modestly calibrated queer-coded Geiger counter will be off the charts while watching Prince of Darkness. Prince of Darkness is a broken message from our own future, and we have already sailed straight past the warning signs. We've received this warning too late. We talk about the AIDS crisis as if it's over, but it's not. We talk about queer liberation as if a few gay politicians and gay talk show hosts constitute the flag bearers of a completed political project. They're not. It's not that we don't or can't hear the anti-causal warnings flowing back from futures past. They're just noise now. The cacophony of our moment is just too loud. We can still hear each other, but we haven't figured out a way to tune back into the screaming. This is the kind of film that gnaws at you, reminds you that things need not be the way they are. This is not a dream. Not a dream. We are using your brain's electrical system as a receiver. You are receiving this broadcast in order to alter the events you are seeing. This is not a dream. You are seeing what is actually occurring for the purposes of causality violation. This is not a dream. Join us as we discuss Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. Yes. Yes, yes. Prince of Darkness. Yes. Woo, let's go. My favorite my favorite movie in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles universe. Like there are so many things about this movie I love. Let's let's talk about it. Uh I, let's let's talk about it. <laughs> Let, let's. Uh really on episode 2 and I've already I've already got podcasters madness from from all the podcasting we're going to do today. You mean part 2? Two, part 2 cuz this is all going to be one episode, remember? This is all going to be one episode. This is this is one contiguous. We are in listeners. We're having this as one conversation, so we the, we have the, these aren't they they seem bifurcated for your listening pleasure. But however, there 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 is a unity here. Uh, where should we begin? Where should we 
start this? I, you know, I think it's good to, to start this one on some light, accessible talking points, things you could bring up with family. Let's talk about science and religion. Uh, yes, let's talk about science and religion. And crucially, let's talk about science and religion, not science versus mm-hmm. versus religion. Um, both both of these are kind of like master discourses, right? These are these are these are um, hermeneutics by which we are supposed to not just uh, understand the world, but existentially orientate ourselves within the world. And both of these things are completely are are working in tandem, working working together to try and try and resolve another kind of cri- moment of crisis that Carpenter is talking about. Absolutely right. Like, like th- these are these are, I mean, like te- technically philosophies, but but they've transcended that, right? Like, these are some of the most massive cultural institutions humanity has managed to concoct. And I think to, to your to an earlier thing you said, I think I think that this movie is really interesting, not because it's attempting to do the most tired, imaginable high school new atheist thing of making science and religion fight each other like bugs in a mason jar. But like it's it's looking at how they intersect, how they're how they're co-constitutive and how they mutually support for both good and bad. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't do the thing that a lesser film would have done, which is where like the scientist discovers the importance of faith or Donald Pleasance's priest discovers the importance of understanding the world in a rational way. Uh, But which would have been so boring and so tiresome, but actually uh, sees both as. In, in a way, you could say this film either really has a very high opinion of science or a very low opinion of religion, or arguably kind of both. Um, <laughs> ah, yes. But I don't think either of those things is a problem. Um, because what is it Professor uh, Hiram Birak says? You know, reality breaks down, common sense breaks down on this on the on the kind of subatomic level. Uh, and you start dealing with things which cannot be measured, not really, can't can't really be observed properly. And in a way, you start dealing with something that sounds kind of close to issues of faith. Absolutely. Right. And, and I think that this is this is by far one of my favorite Carpenter movies, if not in my top three. Like this, this is such a good powerful engaging film and a lot of that comes in the back of the fact that as i joked about earlier there are maybe three to five unbroken philosophical monologues in this film and like so, so when we when we when the good professor um hv emeritus professor uh has that monologue right about the difficulties in observing things when you're dealing with the cutting edge of physics the difficulties of understanding them using what we would even consider to be rational science. The the first thing that I think of, the first instinct I have is like, well, how does that then like the ooze that's contained in the basement of this forgotten church? How do we break out of our container of this conversation and, and, and sluice back and forth into different subjects? Because if this, if this sector of what we accept as a physical science is so faith-based to use an intentionally provocative phrasing what then about the rest of science in this world uh i mean to 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 push this even further what about academia generally right what are they doing yes universities emerge out of out of theology historically speaking uh universities uh then get linked inextricably to imperialism 
you know, British universities were the training centers for the people who were sent out to administer the empire, right? So yep. all of those things are tied up with one another. There's a super, there's a line of dialogue that you pointed out to me by one mm-hmm. of the one of the students who's who's taking the professor's class in like advanced theoretical physics, which I think is super important to bring up here, right? Yeah, yeah. So this is actually um, this is Walter's character, and and he says, uh, "Why do I why do I want a PhD in this?" Right? He's he's exacerbated over their studies, and and one of his colleagues turns to him and just kind of jokingly says, "Weapons grants." <laughs> yes. You know, yeah. Yeah. Hint, hinting at their futures, and like this is this is a deeply important thing to look at, right? Because a lot of people, and I think it's it's a lot a lot of people have the sense that religion is not a neutral force in the world. You know that that I I won't say on the bias, but religion is often a force for immense evil on a scale that is hard to conceive. Uh, but so is science. Science is not this neutral fact-finding mission that it likes to present itself as. It's it's often an arm of imperialism. It's an arm of conquest. It's the it's the like like bureaucratic little spreadsheet servant of capitalism. It's it's a tool, and and just like any tools, you you can use your hammer to to go to your grandmother's house and repair that cabinet door that's been bugging her for years. You could also do acts of unspeakable terror with that hammer. Yeah, uh, science has become this this um, this idea that like science is a sort of value neutral institution that is above the realm of politics is completely uh, undone. You know, when you look at university jobs boards and they're advertising for, you know, visiting Raytheon Fellow in AI guidance systems. Yeah. And, you know, in like like one of the darkest things about this movie is that like you 100 percent know that that's like like, we'll we'll get to this more when we get to the end of the film. And and we, we talk about the kind of implications of that. But for me, one of the scariest things in this movie is that if if Satan doesn't win, the winner is the American university system and, and their partners and fellows at, at Raytheon. And, and they're going to find a way to put Satan goo inside of a drone. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like it, it's, it's a worse future. Oh yeah. Satan, ah. Satan at least has, has, has a, depending on, on which literary tradition you subscribe to a legitimate gripe with his dad. <laughs> And this is this is the other thing that I was thinking as uh, watching this is like, like they get radiologists, they get uh, linguists, they get like um, experimental and theoretical physicists. I'm like, who's paying for all of this? And once again, once again, we find out that academia just runs on exploited and alienated free labor. Uh, yeah, yeah, like, 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 and there's there's kind of the. The, the other the other side of that hanging question where it's like sure that this this is like four decades ago when universities had more money to throw around um but like you you know who's foot in the bill for this one you you, you know it's you know it's it, it's there's one of two people who are paying for them to, to to go study the slime of the devil and that's either Raytheon or Uncle Sam uh yeah exactly exactly <laughs> They're on a DOD contract from God right now. This this movie is troubling. But this raises, like, this is, this is, here's, here's the area in which it gets super interesting, right? Because the, 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 the Satan goo uh, has been, has been kept secret by 
a monastic order referred to as the Brotherhood of Dreams. Um, and it, it's implied, it's never stated explicitly, but it's there, there are lots of clues in the film that this is a kind of like a secret order within the structure of the church itself. Right? Oh, uh, yeah, this is, these are Catholics. Protestants do not have the kind of, of gumption to, to complete a secret order protecting Satan goo for thousands of years. Um, yeah, so, so but, but my point is, that, like, the, this is secret. This is a se- kind of secret order within the Catholic Church, which is this notoriously secretive institution anyway, which raises, to me, an interesting kind of, like, religious point, because I actually think there are two ways of thinking about religion. Uh, in fact, two ways of thinking about Marxism as well, right? Which is you have a reactionary and kind of repressive uh, way of practicing religion, but you also have like things like liberation theology, uh, you know, where, where you had like Marxist guerrillas being joined by priests who took up took up AK-47s to like fight, uh, fight the army. So like within the church, there's this split and Donald Pleasance is this kind of weird interstitial figure that moves between uh, this kind of secret order of trying to kind of negate some grand ontological evil. And of course, the secret order that all too often is the cause of grand evil of the Catholic Church. <laughs> I, I think that's such a wonderful way to look at Prince of Darkness, because I think in, in a lot of the way, so like the thing, you know, like the, the, this takes me back to Combined and Uneven Apocalypse, the book, Right. Um, phenomenal book. We did a review episode on it. Highly recommend everyone pick up a copy and go read it. Great. Um, and listen to our episode while you're there. And while you're there, you should also go to patreon.com slash horror vanguard. We've got all kinds of ontological evil conversations for you to peruse, as well as early access to bonus episodes, some behind the scenes, cuts, clips, and information, as well as access to the horror vanguard discord. And once we reach 500,000 Patreon subscribers, I will pay the Catholic Church for their vial of satanic slime. <laughs> okay, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what, what do I owe everybody now? I owe everybody a chthonically haunted uh, 90s internet dial-up modem, and now I guess I don't owe anyone anything. I just, I, I'm obligated to buy slime from the Catholic Church at some point. <laughs> If it's for sale, but then, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure we could come to an arrangement. Oh, eventually, eventually, you know, our, our, if our podcast lasts long enough, you know, the Catholic Church will be hurting and they'll need to come to old Uncle Horror Vanguard for a dime. Um, and also, <laughs> that's, that's maybe, maybe one of the best Patreon plugs we've done. I finally got good at it and now it's just nonsense. But no, I think like, you know, like to tie this back to the thing, right? Like the thing, the thing is an ooze that's attempting to re- really assail where we see our boundaries in the world, right? Whether those are, are the boundaries of simply our flesh between the, you know, like myself and the person next to me, or whether they're, they're boundaries of philosophy and cognition. And I think in a lot of ways, the slime and ooze in, in this film is attempting to do some of the more interesting things that slime can do like like freely slide back and forth between multiple opposing discourses you know like because your your kind of highlighting of the position of catholics is in in this is really important right the catholic church has been directly responsible for or aided and abetted some of the most horrifying things that have happened in human history no question about that 
Christianity as a, as a religion more broadly is stained red with the blood of millions of souls. Also, we've got liberation theology. We've got the Catholic workers. We, we've, you know, like there's the Magnificast podcast to, to wonderful people. Like Christianity is also a source of like great revolutionary potential and joy for people. Like this, this isn't a contradiction that, that needs to be held. This is however, a fight that needs to be won. And I think that this film is doing that with, a lot of different discourses at the same time, right? Because we have academia in here too, right? And is academia just going to forever be the thing that the DOD uses to invent new ways to make robo-dog killers when we need them? Or can we actually be a force of education in the world? You know, and then like like the, 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 this film is even like, you know, it's it's playing with the boundary of the queerness too, right? Like, is 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 this about queer liberation? You know, is this about some kind of dissolution of the kind of capitalistic family family unit? Or is this kind of like an assimilationist discourse of like, oh, those us queers can be just as good as the straights. You just wait, I'll get my bootstraps and I'll be ready to go. Like like the, the, the film is necessarily like gnawing at the kind of boundaries and rigors we set up. Yes, absolutely. And like theoretical physics and religion on certain levels are not uncomfortable with contradiction or antagonism um, because those have to be thought through dialectically. Um, And interestingly, I don't think, I don't think Carpenter is uncomfortable with those either, especially when you think about how this film ends. But I think, I think what we should do or what I should do is I should provoke you into talking more about goo because (laughs) Because this is a very fluid movie. There's a lot of fluids. There's a lot of fluid in this. Yeah, it's a few. Um, because this is how you are possessed by the Prince of Darkness is through a transformative green goo. Uh, so there are two things I wanted to ask you about. I wanted to ask you about bugs. And I wanted to ask you about this idea of possession as being something that you kind of take into your, into your body. So I think I think like the, the position of insects in this film is really interesting because it 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 does some fun stuff for us. It does some of the things that like swarms are are like the cousin of goo. Swarms are very very goo in how we how we appreciate them and how we look at them. And so one of the things that's going on in this movie is that as you as you become more under the influence of this so in in the container of goo at some point in history jesus imprisoned the son of satan in a cylinder of ooze or maybe satan's son is the ooze and that leads us to the moment we're at today this movie is very goofy in terms of it's like if, if you like actually try talking about the setup that gets us to the current moment but like the more the more influenced by you know satan's bad vibes you are the more like tiny little beetles you have crawling all over you. And I, I think this, this, this does some interesting things, right? Because we're, 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 we're doing these like little cultural linkages that aren't very critical, right? Because of course, like, oh, like, and they're all like, like unhoused people as well. They're all homeless. So it's like, of course, the homeless are dirty and covered in insects. You know, they're, they're eating, they're eating maggots out of a cup. You, you, you know, like, like the, the our, our Catholic priest of the secret order who should kind of maybe know the signs sees sees like like someone who's clearly like losing it eating maggots out of a cup 
And it's just like, oh, homeless. And that's how our college students react to a lot of these people. And, and I think like what, what we're seeing here is in a, a kind of like discursive attempt to naturalize the condition of homelessness. You know, like, oh, insects are gross and they live in the dirt and the homeless are gross and they live in the dirt. So we can kind of just like conveniently naturalize and wrap that. But what I think happens through the course of the movie is like we, we, we come to realize that that's not quite the case. These aren't naturally occurring insects. These are these are the Satan's swarm of evil, cute little beetles. And so we, we then have to reassess the position of of the the poor and the homeless in this movie. You know, if if these beetles aren't here for natural reasons, then neither are these people. What reasons are they here for? Well, Satan didn't put them there, you know, then capitalism did. And so I think there's kind of like this this like large discursive cycle you can go through. What are your thoughts? Well, I think you've raised the most obvious and pressing question that I think we have to consider here, which is what is Alice Cooper doing in this? <laughs> Um, well, he's not here to educate us on Milwaukee, the good land. <laughs> this is really the episode where Ash talks about other movies he really likes. And now talks about himself in the third person. Let's, let's, talk, let's talk about Alice Cooper really quickly. Um, you know, like, we all know who Alice Cooper is. We, we, we don't need to do that song and dance. But what's really interesting is how he's placed in this film. I think that Alice Cooper has really interesting cinematic appearances anyway. Um, there's always something a little tongue in cheek when Alice Cooper shows up in a film. Um, and in this one, right, you would expect Alice Cooper to have some monumentous role that is kind of on level with his stardom, right? You would expect that Alice Cooper would be Satan himself or, or he would appear clean and lavish as a rock God should, but he's, he's actually just one one of the many homeless people who are becoming corrupted by Satan's influence. And I think that that is also very interesting because if you don't know it's Alice Cooper, you probably won't just recognize him, you know, and like you won't recognize his stage props that they use in the movie, which is really cute. You you might not notice that it's, um, he wrote he wrote a song called Prince of Darkness for Prince of Darkness that you hear in the movie playing on a character's headphones off a cassette player when they die. And and so like it's almost like the silent appearance of Alice Cooper. What are, what are some of your thoughts about this? Well, I I completely agree with you. I think it's super interesting that in a film where that's set in L.A., you would expect him to be like a classic. Like he was he was he was shock rock, right? Like you know he yeah. was like gothic excess maximalism, um, <laughs> and this kind of sense of humor. And he plays everything is very downbeat. So he's like here, but he's like a he's Alice Cooper is haunting this film, right? Mm -hmm. The stage version of Alice Cooper is haunting this film, um, and what we get is something is something much more kind of somber, but one that because you strip away all of the excess, immediately raises some really serious questions about class and yeah. and presentations of the unhoused. Right, L.A. Um, yep. it, it like this happens in Los Angeles which is a phenomenally like divided city in terms of like uh, income inequality, class position. Um, and, and like the fact that, that so many of the, the possessed are, 
unhoused and associated with all these cultural signifiers of dirt and disease and a lack of hygiene and some like quite surprising uh, discourse around mental illness in this film. I think it's so interesting that Alice Cooper, who's known for this kind of like extravagant performativity, takes this role specifically. I I completely, completely agree, right? And, and part of this too is, is how we code in cinema people to be something <clears throat> no matter what that is right like and and to do that with alice cooper is is really interesting to kind of scale him away from the kind of lavish excess that that is rock and roll success and bring him back and i think that <clears throat> like the gothic in terms of mental health has always been something that's really interesting and i need to take a sip of water because we've been podcasting for a long time Ooh, sipped. Um, but what I think is really interesting is so, so like the horror has a lot to say about mental health, and so does the gothic more broadly. And and so like like one of we get this whole line where like one of the college students took a class on mental illness, and they now know the symptoms of chronic schizophrenia, and and these people are, you know, like displaying those classic symptoms, but in a much more worrying way. <clears throat> And I think like we we can we can kind of pick this apart and and do do a little not creation of our own here to to throw a throwback to the earliest part of the thing conversation, but on the first level, right? Like we've got horror's notoriously terrible relationship with madness and mental health, right? Horror still to this day, new horror movies are coming out this year that the the villain is going to be the villain because. They they have some poorly understood, you know, madness like psychopathy or something. And that's part of what's going on here. But I think that then we, we can pull it back because they don't really have there's really no mental illness in this movie. Right. Right. There's no madness here. These people are being hypnotized by Satan's magic goo. You know, like like this is this is a different different thing. So then why are we coding it that way? Why are we reading it in those terms? Why are we trying to use those languages? And I think it's telling to know that like these these young academics, these researchers, right? These arms of both the Catholic Church's evil secret organization and likely a Defense Department research project are the ones who are reinscribing and kind of imbricating themselves in this like incredibly ableist discourse on on madness and people who are unhoused, right? Yeah, I mean, this is this is a, this is a, this is a, this is the quantification problem, right? This is the this is the same problem, arguably, that the thing circles around, which is like, what is it? What are what are these people doing? And so, like, you turn to the what 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 is what is the huh, what is the Bible of American psychiatric care? It is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, right? Which is which is about a quantitative and qualitative taxonomy of behaviors, symptoms, and presentations uh, that is designed to classify people, designed to solve the, the, the kind of idea that we don't know who or what is going on with, with, with subjectivity. It is, it, it is an expression of kind of productive biopower that is there to kind of like obfuscate uh, and make known all structures of existence. And it's worth pointing out that, like, you know, like, like, like people with mental illness, people who are mad, et cetera, and so forth, like, regularly protest the DSM. 
because of the nature of its construction, right? Right. The, D- the DSM is not so much for healthcare as it is a body of politics. You know, like it, it used to be in the DSM that if you were gay, you were mentally ill. You know, like like this is expressly a political thing. This is not akin to like a manual on heart health problems, right? Like like this is this is a completely different type of text on a very fundamental level, and we see that at play in Prince of Darkness. We see literally this biopower being used. We see these people being coded not only as homeless, but now also as insane as a way to make disposing of them easy. Because if they're crazy, then there's nothing that can be done for them. And just like zombies, we can safely dismiss and kill them. And we can reject what they're doing, why they're trying to do it. We enter into a lot of the same problems we have with the ooze and the thing, right? By by just kind of shackling this thing to all of its othered states, we kind of abnegate the responsibility that we have for the other Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And it kind of shows the, the, the violence inherent in this. Uh, this is exactly what I was talking about in relation to the thing, right? The violence inherent in that imposition of a border, right? The violence of responding to that which we don't know or understand as a kind of threat that has to be excised in order to secure our own cognitive and epistemic maps of existence, Absolutely. Absolutely. Like these kind of frameworks want you to be charted within hegemonic discourses, right? Like, like this is what the DSM is attempting to do. It's attempting to chart people inside of a given framework that's useful for capitalism. You know, we, we can compare this to like mad liberation and like the work done by like De Brule and other people from the Icarus project that, that are like, okay, well, what are other frameworks we could use? Like, like, like what, what if instead of looking at these things as illness, we look at them as dangerous gifts. We look at them as different, but, you know, different and distinct and potentially hazardous, but not ill. And I think that that becomes incredibly powerful in the context of this film. Um, and this is especially when we get to other things where it's like, you know, talking about homosexuality as a mental cognitive disease, a defect of the mind w- was not unheard of decades ago. You know, like this is that's something that's still in contemporary culture. Like it's not even it's not even gone, <laughs> well, but we act like it is. But anyway, get going. What were you going to say? Let's kind of bring that up. Right. Let's kind of bring that up. We've talked about the way in which there's there's this kind of like biopolitical element towards uh, mental illness, this dismissive way of, of reimposing a kind of order. Should we talk about Walter? <clears throat> oh, we need we we need we Walter, buddy. We gotta talk. <laughs> um, this is something you pointed out in your pricey, which is that there is there's 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 quite a bit of queer coding in this. Um, Walter Walter is a very interesting character. Confesses that uh, <clears throat> what what is it when when they were twelve uh, they were they they had this kind of psychosomatic response because they're worried about being gay, uh, and then. At a certain point, there's a scene in which Walter is quite literally trapped in a closet. Um, what do you think about this? So, so I think that there's a lot of like things that we need to pick apart here. And the first thing is that like it, it, we we have what what is a classic problem, whether it's Harry Potter or the works of Carpenter. Um, but no one is gay in this movie. Everyone is just queer coded. And that, I think, is a discursive problem that we have to wrestle with that has a lot of 
much like much like goo much like slime molds right like it's it's hard to pin down into being just a single thing um but it nevertheless is worth flagging up walter is the character that gets the most queer coding you know he said he even says in a line of dialogue that when he was younger his therapist diagnosed him with having what was it like gay panic or something like that yeah 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 um and, and yeah, like 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 as you mentioned, there's literally a scene where he's trapped in a closet as two women stare him down and prevent him from leaving. Like, uh, okay, and like you know, there's like and the whole the whole fact that like in order to escape the closet, they, they they have to bang a hole through the rear end of the closet that he crawls out of, and that's just like like read the read the essay anal rope. It's just that fucking essay again. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a reference to Hitchcock's movie Rope. And then, like, on top of that, like, we have a scene where, like, two female actors crawl on each other at night. And then we have multiple characters spitting goo in each other's faces. And the majority of time that someone's spitting goo in someone else's face, it's a same-sex goo spitting. <laughs> same-sex goo spitting. <laughs> that's, that's, that's my favorite of the French New Extremity films, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That would sound so good in French too. That would sound so. That would sound criterion. <laughs> same, uh, same sex goose spitting is uh, is uh, my new grindcore band that I'm starting. Ooh, ooh, oh hell yeah! I would listen to so much of that. <laughs> um, you're completely correct, and with with all of this uh, kind of filmic and semiotic coding, with uh, a lot of this kind of like fluid as means of transmission with the historical context of this film as to the, when it was produced and when it was released. I think it's entirely reasonable to, to think about this again in terms of uh, aid cinema. Yes. Yes, absolutely. There's no way to talk about Prince of Darkness and not talk about AIDS. Which kind of complicates the film in lots and lots of ways, uh, which I think are really interesting. But what do you think about reading it in those terms? So I think I think the first thing that I look at is something I I, I talked about in the Precy, and that's like, so, so so kind of how did we get to where we are today with the AIDS crisis? A lot of people talk about AIDS as if it's over, but it's not. You know, like we we have like we have stuff like prep. We have a lot more knowledge, um, which, which allows communities to kind of much more safely exist in in a world with AIDS, a post AIDS world. However, um, it, it, it's we're still in the moment of the onslaught of the crisis. It's not resolved yet, you know, in the same way that we that a lot of people are talking about COVID as if it's over, but it's 100 percent not over. You know, we're still in the onset of the crisis. Um, it's it's a it's a kind of ideological trick of capital to talk about these things as if they have ended rather than as if they're in continuances. Um, and so, like, when it's first hit the scene uh the thing the thing that happened that perpetuated spread that perpetuated its spread was that governments particularly the united states and the united kingdom their academic bodies and their media bodies discussed aids as if it was a gay man's phenomenon that if you weren't a gay man you wouldn't get aids and at the time it's 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 like you know, our, our listeners might be hearing this today and it might sound a little strange but at the time, being gay was a mental illness. Being gay was a crime in a lot of places, like a prison, due time in prison crime for having a boyfriend. Like, it was a very different world. Being gay was seen as a moral defect. 
I mean, you know, uh, this film is 1987. Uh, there was this, there's this moment in the mid nineties with something like Philadelphia where mm-hmm. you you can have where, where they the, like, uh, being HIV positive or, 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 uh, dealing with AIDS is like, Oh, there, there's the good people who get it as well. And when in fact, like, you know, there's still this kind of very paternalistic moral judgment, even when it is being talked about explicitly. Oh, no, no, a- absolutely. It's it's very condescending when it's being positive, which is a weird phrase. And I, and I think that's really important to look at the context of this movie, right? And so, so like, to, to go back to one of the things that I was talking about earlier, right? The fact that there are no gay characters in this movie. It's just that everyone is queer coded. Um, and we have scenes where characters are in the closet. And, and I think part of that speaks to a certain truth, right? It's it's a lot easier to be out now than it was four decades ago. It was easier to be out four decades ago than it was four decades before that, you know? It, as, as difficult as our current moment is, I think it's important to recognize that we're winning the long game. Um, even if these victories are feric and often hollow, they are nevertheless some kind of victory. And we see that at play in this movie, right? Like, you know, a lot of these characters, you tell me Brian's mustache isn't at least a little mm. queer. Some, mm-hmm. some, some, mm. some strong Labor Kyle vibes, I have to I, say. <laughs> I was When I was re-watching this, Brian popped up and I immediately like s- s- posted something on Twitter. And I was like, Labor Kyle, I, I need your verdict on this mustache. It's um, it. I mean, it is what it is. Like we're not. We're, the subtext is 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 barely sub. It's it's just text. Yeah, I, I, to quote Giles, I believe the subtext is becoming text. And like he, you know, like he has he has a cis female partner in this movie, and that that means he's got one of the a different, more complicated sexuality, right? You know, it's it's not just a straight gay binary that we're dealing with here. Much like the goo. It's something that's fluidic and constantly moving and deeply alive and always renegotiating its boundaries. And that, I think, is one of the strengths of how this movie depicts queerness and horror, right? And it's something that is very much alive, very much renegotiating its boundaries constantly. And even though something that, especially in the late 80s, you know, had to remain hidden in certain contexts and for special or for um, very important political reasons nevertheless was alive. Yes, exactly. It's, uh, I think there's, that's, that's one of the things that makes the film so interesting on the long term, right? Is the way in which all of its silences, all of the things that it can't say explicitly, you end up noticing that. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and and all of the stuff about and all of the stuff about you know uh, antimatter, uh, the god of antimatter and matter meeting and uh, like a lot of that becomes kind of like less interesting than the than the things that the film kind of like skirts around the edge of. Oh, oh, I I completely agree. Right, like this the, the, this movie is like almost like cloyingly indirect. You know, like like there's there's kind of like a frustration, a frustrating bratty quality to Prince of Darkness that I think is appropriate to its name, but like 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 the movie is just always kind of one step outside of your grasp, like like taunting and teasing with like really compelling discourse, but you need to be the one to take it, take the action, 
right? Prince of Prince of Darkness isn't going to deliver you much. You need to be the one to like get up and go. Uh. And I think that indirectness comes up in the dream sequence as well, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. We have to we have to talk about uh, shot on VHS and the dream sequence. Yeah. So there's this dream sequence that that all of the people who sleep in the abandoned church are going to start having um, of a figure emerging from a church from the church, right? Um, but it's it's something that's that, that plays back because it's been filmed on VHS and then, then uh, it's, pl- it's been filmed and then it's played back on VHS as part of the film. So mm-hmm. it has this weird kind of like retro, like uh, nostalgic quality to it, which I think is, it's such an interesting way of building in dr- the language of dreams into the structure of cinema and this is like this is the late '80s. We're talking about the heyday of, vid- of video and VHS, right? Like it, it's it's nostalgic from our, our current uh, standpoint because those technologies are largely dead, but like or undead, dun dun dun. But one <laughs> of the things that I think is really interesting is that like you know like this was this was like the time for video rental stores and like like this would have been this would have been very similar grainy. Like, like, like that was that, that. That's how like the re-recorded, re-recorded, re-recorded VHS cassette that you had lying around that had you know maybe some episodes of Dragon Ball Z on it or a sports game or something. That's how those things start to look after a while of getting beaten up. And I think that that as as the format of the message from the future to to come through, through the hands of a of a media format that not two decades later would be nearly entirely dead. There's something really compelling about that. Um, yeah, because you, you might you might see the, you might see the film on on the big screen. You might see it on video, but even this video within the film itself is like degraded. It's 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 far grainier. It's far it's it is the video that's been recorded over and over and over again. And it's like that's such a cool way of like turning dreams into an object of technology, right? Now, now that technology doesn't exist. Is that is that? Oh, Harker. <laughs> oh yeah, hang on. I think Harker wants to go into a different room. All right, buddy. Yeah. So I think another thing that I think is really interesting about these dream sequences is kind of like the anti-linear flow of time that we deal with in this movie. Mm-hmm. And this is something that they're, they're discussing in terms of physics, right? They bring this up a lot. Oh, something can travel faster than light. It can go back in time. You know, subatomic particles often behave in ways that don't necessarily obey what we expect as causality. Um, and like, I, I think we're getting we're getting towards the end, so I think it's fine to start talking about the end of the film a little bit. But one of the things that I think is really interesting is no matter how you view the end of this movie, whether you view that as Satan having being having been defeated and the problem being over. And, and, you know, Brian just having to live on with some trauma or you view it as, you know, like Satan is not defeated because ooze, ooze can be separated and still live. You know, all you need is a little bit of, of slime for it to reconstitute its entirety. Um, it, it doesn't matter because that message is still going back in time. You know, it's it's both damned because there's still a future that can send that message and hopeful because there's still a past that can receive. Yeah, I mean, personally, I lean towards the kind of bleaker endings because I think that's more like thematically appropriate with the trilogy as a whole. But just for the record, 
there is like a there's like a classic vintage um dream within a dream jump scare right at the end which just it's just mm, mm-hmm. uh it's just it's just a little treat it's just a little treat for anyone who loves horror movies so let's 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 talk about this ending a little Let, let's pick that apart so so what do you make of that like dream within a dream and his and his going to touch the mirror at the end well i mean firstly let's talk about what happens to her right like purgatory is is effectively what happens Right. You end, yeah. you end up in the realm of, of Satan, unable to get out, but unable to kind of do anything. Um, uh, so but I think the very the technology and the te- the technologization of dreams and the temporal dislocation of dreams means that the ending is not as fixed or as certain as people might think. Oh, oh, I, I completely agree. And I think I think this also has like a deeply personal quality to it too, right? Because like you've got the the ooze son of Satan attempting to rescue their father from this kind of purgatorial mirror dimension. Um I'm I'm, assu- I'm assuming su- Superman's villains are also trapped in there too in a wacky crossover. <laughs> um but but you're in you're in this interesting position where like again like it, it it's not one or the other but all you know you you have like like, like to look at the thing to to, to try and do uh, ooze born son of Satan oriented ontology like <laughs> you know is is this kind of an oppressive relationship right right is this is this kind of the servant of the father attempting to free them at all costs is this like something being done out of love. You know, to even though your dad is Satan to free them or or is this like like, you know, the, the beginning of a weird exploration of an uncertain boundary, right? Like ev- everyone like it or not is in part their parents. That That is part of the nature of the kind of being that we are. We are literally part of them. However, on a much perhaps more meaningful scale, on a different scale, we're, we're also have this kind of hopeful potential to go beyond that boundary. You know, we we are part of something, but not defined by it. And I think that dream sequence at the end kind of plays with that, right? Because these events will always be part of Brian, but they don't necessarily have to define the rest of his future, no matter how short that might be. Yeah, because what is it? What is it that you look for when you're drawn to the mirror, right? What are you looking for? You're looking for the limit experience. This is this is the this is the kind of a dialectical tension inherent within humans, human, the human subject, right? You get drawn to, to like theoretical experimental physics does this religion does this. It's it's about taking, taking you to the kind of very edge of subjective experience itself, right? Where, where uh, existence starts to unravel and come apart in really interesting ways. So, um, I think a lot of this comes down to the, the question of what what is it what does possession mean? In in the, mm-hmm. like is it is it an abnegation of agency right? Because arguably, right at the end, the mirror is smashed through an act of of human agency, or is it actually a new articulation of agency? Right, the the as of the video uh, dream sequence, you get to see it in full right at the end of the film. Um, yeah. And it's like, are they possessed or are they simply becoming a new kind of person? 
And, and I think that's that's one of the really important things that we need to contend with when we're talking about Prince of Darkness is that the, that, that question, are they possessed or are they becoming a new kind of person, is a, a question that cannot be wrestled without also wrestling its context. You know, what are the limits of the new kind of persons that can emerge under capitalism? You know, like, like what, are, what are the kinds of people that we can make using systems created by Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan? You know, like, like who, who gets to define the limits of our horizon here? And I think, like, in possession is such an interesting way to look at this because this is both a ma- it's, it, possessions in, in the Gothic are often a magnification of what's already inside you. You know, it's it's not and it, 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 just like you were talking about with the thing. It's not this external force coming to take you over. It's it's your denied self. It's the shadow bursting forth onto the scene. And like how that manifests, how that manifestation can interface with the rest of society, because possessions also like it's not just a thing that happens with individuals it's a thing that happens in between individuals. <clears throat> your possession is going to be interrelated to your relationships with other people. This movie, this movie does some pretty interesting things with that. It plays with that space. What are, what are, do, you, do you have any more comments on possessions in this film? I think often possession is seen as this kind of like annihilation, but it can also be a liberation, right? It's Absolutely. A, it's a means of stepping outside. It's a means of like going through the mirror and confronting what is in, in the kind of ordinary normative policed discourses of, of human life unconfrontable absolutely absolutely the possessions are often that which is denied exploding outward and that doesn't have to be bad i I think of the movie ava's possessions here as another exploration of this topic but like you know your your inner demons aren't necessarily forces of darkness and evil they're just denied and shut out because the way that this kind of like Thatcherite society is structured, there's simply no space for those impulses. Let's talk about our beliefs and what we can learn about them. We believe nature is solid and time constant. Matter has substance and time a direction. There is truth in flesh and the solid ground. The wind may be invisible, but it's real. Smoke, fire, water, light, they're different, not as to stone or steel, but they're tangible. And we assume time has narrowed because it is as a clock. One second is one second for everyone. Cause precedes effect. Fruit rots, water flows downstream. We're born, we age, we die. The reverse never happens. None of this is truth. Say goodbye to classical reality because our logic collapses on the subatomic level into ghosts and shadows. All right, all right, all right, all right. Uh, all you ghouls. And I don't know why all of a sudden I became like a 1950s radio disc jockey. <laughs> but we are now moving into the third part of Carpenter's Apocalypse Trilogy. We'll be talking about In the Mouth of Madness. And, and, you know, how it relates to these three films and the end of all things as we know it. Uh, I was about to do introductions again, but no, this is just a really long episode, not multiple episodes. Uh, John, how do you feel about H.P. Lovecraft? <laughs> um, well, 
I think I have some very complicated feelings about H.P. Lovecraft, which we will inevitably have to get into over the course of this episode. But over the course of this episode, over the course of this section, as you can as you can hear, dear listeners, reality itself is starting to break down for us. We've 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 pushed through the the veil that podcasters normally dare not uh, go beyond and. You will get from from us now for the whole of October only the most uh, cosmic of horror criticism. Yeah, yeah, we, you know, we we earlier earlier today we had podcasters fever, but now we've we've just we've just shed our frail mortal flesh. We're now cosmic entities of podcasting. So, for the very final time. The very final time, Ash, my dear friend, uh, my my co-fictional character within the HV no- novel <laughs> that is written by the mysterious chthonic figure that lives beyond the realm of all consciousness. Would you mind telling, explaining, n- narrating the final part of John Carpenter's Apocalypse Trilogy? What is it all about? Carpenter's Apocalypse Trilogy are three films that are overloaded with discourse. Like live wires sparking and catching flame, they force their reality into ours. Sutter Kane wrote in The Mouth of Madness, which is also a movie adaptation within that movie that is itself an adaptation of Lovecraft's fiction by way of Stephen King's aesthetic sensibilities. There's so much juggling of the real and unreal that we forget a grounding conceit of our filmic discourse. If Sutter Kane is not real, then neither are we. You're talking riddles, young man. The horror of Sutter Kane's text isn't the book itself, but the fact that we will integrate that book and accept it into our hyper-object of collective being. Real or not, fiction is a part of us and is no different from our very hearts. We tell each other stories of the importance of small-town America. We narrate the value, good or bad, of monarchies as they fall. Everything from the latest physics discovery to the next MCU film feeds into our cultural sense of who we are both as individuals and as collectives. All entities become chthonic. Everything gives meaning, gives direction to the hyperstition that is our world. Not a force of the world, but the world as a thing itself. We are both in and of the Mouth of Madness. We are its teeth and its tongue. This is not the madness of cinematic convention, but the madness of mad liberation. Our mundane sanity was the price of admission for a deeper hypersanity, a vision with a price. Join us as we become teeth in tongue and discuss Carpenters in the Mouth of Madness. Part three of the Apocalypse Trilogy, hour three of this episode. Let us all shed our frail sanities. Happy haunting. Goodbye for now. Shall we go? Yes, indeed. Let's. Okay. Here is here is a kind of Woo. point to talk about. Um. And this is something we talked about a lot on this show. Horror is not real, but horror is irreducibly and inescapably real, right? Because horror, as a as a medium, as a as a mode of cultural production, 
or to use Raymond Williams' term, which I really like, a structure of feeling is a kind of philosophical catalyst to our own imagination, right? Horror is the means by which we write our own existence. I absolutely love this this way of looking at horror cinema and horror just kind of more conceptually right like the way that we always talk about on this show horror wants to do things to your body horror is a diagnostic tool for the world in which we live you, you know like like the the gothicized other isn't some some foreign entity impeding on our lives it's an emergence from within these are deeply physical, deeply immediate, and deeply real things that are happening. Even if we're talking about these real occurrences through fictive lenses like werewolves and, I don't know, other other, other ludicrous fantasies like monarchies. Ayo, yes. shot taken. <laughs> topical. Topical. Here's the point that I, I, I kind of want to dig into, which is like, to me, this this film is about a philosophy of language, uh, or it's about the the yeah. the idea of what language is capable of doing, um, and the ways in which it destroys or kind of rewires subjectivity. And so, there are two kind of models of language that we can think about, which is that language is a virus, um, which links it back to the thing, or a kind of more uh, esoteric, uh, maybe slightly more occult way of thinking about things, which is that language is a kind of magic. Language is a spell that alters reality. And I'm just wondering what you think about that. So so I, I completely agree, and I think this ties back to our discussions of ooze in the previous two installments of Carpenter's Apocalypse trilogy. How we look at the thing and the the vial of satanic slime that's uh, stand in for you know queer identities is is kind of bound within linguistic terms, right? You know, like th- things things change a lot on on a substantive real layer. If I start talking about uh, bipolar as a mental disease, as an illness, uh, as as a frailness of the mind, and things change a lot if we start talking about it as mad liberation, you know, if we change the context and we change the terms, things, things shift dramatically. And this has a real world impactful power, you know, every, everything from like, you know, like, 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 like changing self-talk is, is a great example of the, the, this kind of like, like chaos magic potential of words, right? Like what is changing self-talk from a negative, like, Oh, I, I, I'm such a bad writer. I'll never live up to my peers to changing that to like, oh, I'm always growing and I'm always like looking for new horizons. What is that if not a minor magic spell? Yeah, because this is really what this is about, right? This idea that like um, in the familiarity of like pulp horror, there's this potential, there's this, there's this, there's this language which rewires consciousness itself. And so Ironically enough, this brings us back to a to a really kind of deep seated philosophical problem, which is the extent to which reality is thinkable outside of human consciousness. Because this is about to what extent does our does our is reality constructed? 
Um, and this is what the speculative realists or the ooh crowd would call <laughs> the problem of correlationism, right? Subject and object. Thinking the, the like when we're trying to think about the, the world, really we're, we're only thinking about ourselves. Um, and I'm like, here in the third film, Comda's kind of answering all the philosophical problems from the first film. Ah, <laughs> yep. And it's we, like we come full circle. Yeah, we do, right? What What do you think about this? What do you think about this? Because really, this is what the film is about, right? How do you tell the story of what reality is? Do you do it through an investigation? Because our main character is a fraud investigator, or you do it, or do you do it through an act of imagination, which is what Sutter Kane does? I, I think this is an incredibly powerful way of looking at this film, and I think one of the most interesting things in this discussion is what I would argue is the single most Lovecraftian thing in the mouth of madness. And that's beyond using literal titles from Lovecraft stories, straight up borrowing his concepts and characters. It's, it's John Trent. Mm -hmm. The single most Lovecraftian thing in this entire film is our unassuming every man who has a slightly respectable job that involves him interrogating the facts of the world and that rendering him completely incapable of dealing with what he's facing. Mm -hmm. This is this is your standard Lovecraftian character. You either have uh, successful businessmen who are who are good at, at un understanding the ways of money and finance and commerce. You have successful academics who are masters of medicine and physics or literature. And and now you have the, a kind of modern appraisal of that. You have the insurance and fraud investigator. You know, like like the the equivalent of the noir detective for the eighties age. Yeah, absolutely. And he is, you know, like. In in his world, when when you when you stay within the safety blanket of capitalist realism, he is he is a powerful force. He's a player, you know. You know he he makes people bend to his will. But the second he steps outside of that, the second this kind of like this burst, this rupture in the fabric of capitalist realism, right? This kind of like in a lot a lot of what Sutter Kane is doing reminds me of like this kind of gothic excess interpretation of Mark Fisher's talk uh, talking points about the you know like the rave and hallucinations and the kind of utopian seed therein, you, you know, John Trent becomes next to useless when he encounters that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's like this, this idea of a kind of solution, a, a strictly uh, rational uh, causal relationship between certain events starts to break down. Um and obviously, this is where we get into the Lovecraftian territory. So this is kind of cool. You're the Lovecraft guy on the show. So there is a, there is a question as a, as a, as the resident uh, Lovecraft expert that, which is the the question about representation, because so so many of Lovecraft's stories kind of collapse semantically at the end, right? Where you go, language itself sort of fails to to capture the horror of what the the protagonist has seen. But film is a visual medium, not a linguistic medium. So how do you how do you feel about this question of representation in the context of screen versus page? You know, I don't think there's a more frightening combination of two words in the English language than Lovecraftian representation. <laughs> oh, that that conjures demons. Um, so, so what I think is really interesting is that like this has always been the problem with the Lovecraftian specifically, not cosmic horror in general, because that's something like like I think Lovecraft may have 
become the figure that defined that genre, but he is not the entirety of it. Um, but for Lovecraft specifically, I, I think translating to the filmic has always been incredibly challenging. And that's primarily because the way Lovecraft wrote was a lot of people do something that I think is a bit of a misconception. They, they buy into Lovecraft's own hype in a sense. They, they, they talk about Cthulhu and Migos and all of Lovecraft's spook league dudes as being undescribable. But when you read Lovecraft, he'll be like, oh, the, 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 the horror was undescribable in human terms. It had a fungoid body and flabby crab claws and it smelled really bad and it was buzzing like a bee. <laughs> like, <laughs> you, you know, you know he'll, he'll set you up he, like, you know, he sets you up with the it's indescribable. And then he hits you with some like just like, like Lovecraft's gift for purple prose was giving you descriptors that don't correlate well. Mm. I to this day cannot satisfactorily imagine what a flabby claw looks like. Mm. It, it's just good claw, claws have have are hard by kind of by definition. They must be hard. You, you know, there, there are no flabby claws in nature. And like, what would that even be? And I think that when it, when it comes time to put this on screen, Carpenter has a real keen sensibility and, and the, the vfx artists on this one and and the cinematography on this in this film have a really even appraisal of how to do that because we see the monsters especially the wall of monsters which we'll talk about why that's a container ship in just a little bit um but like the wall of monsters i, I think is so important right because like a lot of lovecraftiana i think fails by hyper focusing on the monsters and letting us see them too much and too clearly and too focused. But in this one, like, it's just frantic glimpses. And that's how Lovecraft wrote. Frantic glimpses into the unknown. And that's what we get here. Uh, what, are some, what are some of your thoughts before I start rambling more than I already do? Well, no, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you because I thought, think, you know, Lovecraft is very much your wheelhouse rather than mine. There's, there's a it couple is, of... It is an albatross around my neck. You're right. <laughs> What I really like about this film is that it sets up, I think, kind of four really distinct horror aesthetics that it's returning to. So you have, as I put it in the notes, this is Lovecraft versus King versus Sutter Kane versus John Carpenter. So yes. not not only is this a metatextual horror film, I think it's a meta-metatextual horror film. And like, like, like this is something I teased in the Precy too, but this is... A movie about a fake book that has a fake movie adaptation inside of it that's a reference to Stephen King, who's both a real human being person and kind of this fictitious meta object himself, who who is also deeply in conversation with Lovecraft, who is a real person and a deeply fictitious meta object in and of himself. And like th th this movie is just just a crashing orchestra of reels colliding with each other exactly you know stephen king is uh, a writer who's obsessed with a uh, a vision of of maine but that maine doesn't really exist and stephen king has pseudonyms who are also usually successful writers but they don't really exist and so that and it goes all the way down there's this kind of like inherent yeah. instability and so and lovecraft Oh, go on, go on, go on. And so to have the protagonist of the film be an investigator is such a deliberate and wonderful choice. Yeah. Because because it throws 
all of these things into relief, right? The problem of horror is is an is an ideological problem, right? Horror is is mm-hmm. horror is is a revolt against the ideological presupposition that the world is at, at core solvable, that the human consciousness can in some way encapsulate all things. And horror kind of like serves as the refutation of that and goes, no, no matter how much you think you know, there's always a beyond. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Lovecraft, I was going to tack this on as another great example of this, right? Because like when, when, when people talk about Lovecraft, they often talk about this like dark and brooding loner you, you know, who was to just just like Poe and robed in layers of misery and and and, and horror, uh, but but in actu- actuality, uh, Lovecraft wrote to his friends, which he had many all of the time, constantly cracked jokes with them, put a lot of those jokes in his fiction, and and loved eating ice cream with Houdini. Like you, you know, like the, there there is a contradiction at work here. There there are realities that refuse to overlap with each other because of how we discuss them on linguistic terms, but are nevertheless mutually uh, uh, freestanding. Um, I think we should probably talk about the thing that Stephen King and Sutter Kane share in common, uh, which is New England. Uh, and actually... Yes, the, yeah, also HBL. And and HBL, yeah, of course, sorry. Uh, and and how how these small places are represented. What is it? What does is, what is small town America kind of signify in the tradition of American horror? So I think that this is one of the most interesting conversations that this film is having, right? Because like everyone from Lovecraft through Carpenter himself, Halloween, uh, all of them are deeply in dialogue with this, with their contemporary moments vision of small town America. Um, King and Lovecraft see small town America through the lens of New England which is like, you know, like kind of like the small city with a main street, whereas Carpenter, I think, is looking at a much more Midwestern sense of a suburb as small town America. Um, but what, what, I, what I find to be really interesting here is that like, maybe with the exception of Carpenter, uh, King and Lovecraft perceive small town America as a geographic and architectural space. You know, like like uh, Lovecraft, very like the longest thing Lovecraft ever wrote was a piece of travel writing. Lovecraft was very enamored with architecture and kind of the psychogeographical history of Rhode Island, uh, with Pro- the town of Providence specifically. Um, but something gets kind of lost in these formulations of small town America, right? And that's the small town Americans. You know, like like it's it's the, the there's a kind of absence of the political in these formulations. There, there's a over-focusing on Lovecraft's part, especially in the kind of machinations of geography over time and city planning, even though I don't think he would have phrased it that way. And in Stephen King, it's like deeply nostalgic, deeply, like poisonously nostalgic. And I think there's kind of a missing, there's a missing factor here that we don't really get until Carpenter, which is the reinsertion of the political into small town America. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's bound up in these in these kind of like deeply ideological structures. This, like, Norman Rockwell idea, right, of America as this uh, the small town Americana as this kind of place of uh, ultimate the, the 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 pastoral. It's the American pastoral, right? Is 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 the small town, but that small town is like soaked in blood. Is is viciously re- uh, regulated, policed, racially segregated, uh, full of like the violence of patriarchy, 
you know, uh, really, if you want to see the kind of truth of small town Americana, you just watch Twin Peaks instead. <laughs> like, Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But no, I completely agree. And so it's like, it's not, it's, it's deliberate, right? That Sutter Kane vanishes to New Hampshire of all places, uh, mostly because uh, Maine and Rhode Island were already taken. <laughs> uh, what do you think of the journey there that uh, the two of them undertake? I'm on the highway to Sutter Kane Town. Do, 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 do. <laughs> oh, I'm on the highway to Hobbs End, everybody. Uh, so I think highways are really, really important. And again, this is Lynchian, right? Like, like David Lynch loves highways. Um, loves probably isn't the right word, but highways are often prominent visual imagery. And I think what's really interesting is a highway in this one. So John Trent gets on the highway to go drive to Hobbs End to go hunt down Sutter Kane. And like, what happens to him on that highway? One, one, his, his literal ability to see the world is destroyed. He can now only see the little strips on the highway, the, the little yellow lines separating lanes. And that that is both indicative of the kind of like evil that is the highway system versus a more humane mode of transportation, a.k.a. the locomotive. Right. It's it, But it's also kind of symbolic for the ideologically hypnotic force of the highway. Right. It's meant to be the, the, the facilitator of ultimate American freedom. You're never more free than you are in your personal vehicle on the highway, zipping to your next destination. But that's not quite the case. Mm -hmm. You're being hypnotized. You're losing sight of the rest of the world. And then what happens to John Trent? The highway is eternal. He's imprisoned. He's trapped in Hobbs End until Hobbs End says he can go away. You know, the, the highway isn't a source of freedom. It's actually a shackle. I mean, highways are also um, boundary states. Right. They, they are, they are, they're, they're interstitial. They are, um, on the edge of things deliberately. And they're also, they're the point at which, um, you cross from, you quite literally cross from one state to another. Um, but there's all there. And again, and again, there's a kind of mythology to the American highway, right? It's, it's about connection. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm sorry, but the obvious point of contrast, the obvious point of, of comparison, rather, uh, to that sequence in, uh, in the mouth of madness is, uh, Hideo Kojima's Death Stranding. Oh my God, we're back. We're back. We're back to piss and friendship. Our episode with all gamers are bastards. Uh, but you know what I mean? It's like the whole point of Death Stranding is about re is about that, that desire to, to rebuild connections, right? That's what the highway is. The highway is originally proposed as a sort of utopian project, this idea of like bridging bridging the divide, but it carries with it all of this ideological freight that it can't really support. So it's not a surprise that like to travel is a kind of hallucination. It's a dislocation. It, it's about rupturing your, your sense of the world. It's about putting you into a brand new kind of life world. Um, so travel is therefore a kind of inherently transformative experience, right? I, I know, you know, we, we can even take this back to Lovecraft because you know what, you know what, if I'm going to be damned to, to forever talk about the old man, then I might as well. But like his travel was a transformative experience for him. You, 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 the second he started traveling outside of New England, he, he opened up to the world and became less of a horrible racist pessimist. Mm -hmm. um, not not but less 
and like it was that traveling that changed him that really opened him up and like he went to florida you know like the the rupture as you mentioned this potential of travel exists in the most mundane and unassuming of locations and i think that um well one you said freight which which is an activation phrase uh so we're gonna bridge into a different conversation in a second here um but on top of that like the highway itself is this kind of lovecraftian being right Mm -hmm. it is one of these outer cosmic gods Mm -hmm. right it's it's the new lifeblood of of these countries right it's the new way to travel it's the only way to go to work and to see your loved ones and to meet new people and to reconnect and to go to social events, you have to commune with these flat strips of pavement. You know, you have to buy a personal vehicle, which means you need a job, which means you need to orbit around it. Your entire life exists in service to those blinking yellow lines that flash by on the highway. Yes, exactly. Um, I, I'm aware I, I said the word freight, which is, uh, sort of like, you know, your Manchurian candidate phrase. Um, <laughs> should we talk about logistics? We're we're going to have to. We're going to have to talk about logistics forever for the rest of my life. Um, I wasn't I wasn't really wasn't joking when I said that watching that movie kind of like changed how I see cinema. So this is this is something that I think I'll be dealing with for the rest of my natural and unnatural days. Um. Oh, but you said freight, and now it's time for me to give you quite the fright. <laughs> uh, so we need to talk about the Wall of Monsters. Um, so when John Trent finally finds Sutter Kane uh, in in the church in Hobbs End, one of a series of events happens, and one of the things that we find is that there's kind of this wall of Lovecraftian beasties. Uh, just just hanging just on the other side of the fabric of our reality. And they finally start to break through here. And they chase John Trent down down a hallway. Um, it took 25 people to pilot that wall of monsters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, There were 25 puppeteers inside that bad boy making it go. And we only see it for less than a minute. Um, which I think is a brilliant dedication to the craft here and to displaying the cosmic. But it's also a container ship. Um, this is, I don't know if I've talked about this on the show yet, but like one of the things that occurred to me while watching logistics is that if you have a sufficiently large puppet, that puppet is a container ship and therefore all container ships are also puppets. Um, admittedly, this is, this is one of my more fun ideas, but like what, what, what is a container ship if not a vehicle for the transit of information and human exchange? Right. And, and sure, a lot of that information is in the presence of physical goods, but it's a data exchange nonetheless. Mm-hmm. What is the wall of monsters, if not a ship manifest with with information being piloted by 25 people? Right. It's carrying something to us. It's bringing us its devastating load of knowledge that we're forced to accept. It lands at the harbor of our minds and begins to disperse its packages, whether or not we want them. And I think I think there's the, there's a natural reconnection there, especially in a movie that is so concerned with this this kind of like you know like the, the highway system is designed for like you know like uh, international travel here in North America, national travel in other places in the world, and like it's it's hard for me to not read a natural overlap here. Do do you, what what are, you, what are your thoughts on the longest movie ever made and puppets? Good lord, how can I how can <laughs> how can I compete with that? How can I compete with that? But like. The- isn't this exactly what the film itself is about, right? It's about if, 
you know, to, to, to continue the analogy, to continue the analogy, like container ships are massive, but the networks uh, by which goods are distributed are even bigger. Um, but the same is true of imagination, right? The, the whole point is that the wall of monsters is, is not uh, an excess to our imaginative capacity, but is a challenge to it. Um, it's the means by which we realize how much uh, greater our imagination can expand. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's the, it's the potential of a limit experience, you know, like, like this is the thing on the other side of that mirror. This is it breaking through to you. And then like Trent's response, like Trent as a character is so completely hemmed in by capitalist realism. Even after he's being literally chased by the rupture of the new, all he can do is be like, well, that wasn't real. I have to, and if it was real, I have to stop it from ever happening. Well, there's this, that, that rupture is, is super interesting, that moment of rupture, because what happens is, is that he tears through a page. Sir Kane literally tears his face open uh, and subjectivity is constructed in language, printed language, but is displayed visually in film. And suddenly we get into something super formalist because the tear in the page is also a tear in the screen, right? The screen that is... Uh, John's conception of reality. And he goes right up to the hole and starts to look into it, right? He looks into the abyss, as it were. So there's this moment at which both both language and image kind of collide into one another. And so this becomes the most... It, 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 weirdly, this is a film that gets very close to being like, quote-unquote, lit- literary. But it does it by <laughs> but it but it but it does it by literally literally tearing open the screen of images that is language at its core. Mm-hmm. And you even like one of my favorite scenes in, in The Mouth of Madness is um early on when Trent is just beginning his investigation, he passes by a poster for Sutter Kane's new book pasted on uh to, to a to a brick wall on the city street. Yeah, 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 and and he 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 gets like an odd emanation coming from it. There's like a breeze or something, and he like paws at the surface of it as if he's going to tear it open and step through for just a brief moment. It is such a good little scene. Actually, that that scene. Oh, yep. You okay? Oh no, no, no! That was just me going. Yep, because I saw what you were typing. <laughs> that scene. That scene leads on to. Got, let's let's talk about it. We hey, should, buddy, you want some? Yeah, we got to talk about how this film feels about cops. <laughs> I have a take. I, I have a take on how this film feels about uh, law enforcement. Yeah, I I am on the edge of my seat because we have been podcasting for two and a half hours. Has this been the only cop that we've seen so far? In uh, the Apocalypse trilogy, there's none in the thing, obviously. Uh, tangential cops, of course, if, if we accept policing as something more than than, than the badge and the hat. No, Prince no, of I Darkness. Think, I think I don't I th- think I think there was right. one. I think you're right. This is the this is the first and only cop in the Apocalypse trilogy. Which again, Carpenter, God, I love you. <laughs> this might be podcast delirium setting in, but way to go, man. Um, so, so here's my take. Here's my take. I'll jump in. John Trent has reoccurring nightmares of walking in front of this alley and seeing a bunch of just people with mutilated monster faces. But it always starts with seeing a cop beating a homeless man. 
you know, and like, or at least a man that's heavily intimated to be homeless. I guess we don't know for sure, but like that in and of itself, I guess could be discourse. But like, so the, the, the cop looks at him and he's like, oh, you want some of this too? You know, like, like threatening to attack Trent. And then later, you know, he has the same vision, but now the cop has like this twisted, almost looks like Toxie from Toxie the Toxic Avenger, um, yes. which is very yeah, yeah, weird yeah. to me. Um, but so I think I think like I, I read this kind of along two lines that from J- John Trent is a man who is a type of police, right? He's an insurance fraud investigator. He's some t- he's, he's on the cop continuum. Um, and, and like given everything we know about his character, like he, he, he wouldn't be for or against cops, you know, or he, he would at worst be like neutrally in support of them, I guess. Like he seems to be someone who's like decidedly apolitical. Um, and so, and so what we see here with, with this cop is both, uh, John Trent as kind of your representation of your hegemonic cis het, white American encountering for the first time in his life, the horror of policing. And, and I, I think it's really interestingly done because, you know, he's seeing the violence he's always seen and never had to contend with, you know, the, the police being violent towards the people that they're always the most violent towards, right? The marginalized, the other, along any any spectrum, we can look at that. And Trent as kind of the embodiment of like everything that capitalism and white supremacy enjoy, now having to confront this as like a source of fear for him personally for the first time ever. And, and the fact that in the nightmare sequence, what happens immediately after that is all of the other citizens, all of the, these, these denizens of the night turn on him they come for him all these other people who have to be out at the street in the middle of the night you, you know like come after him as well I, I, there's so much going on here what, what, what are your thoughts well i agree with you actually and like let's kind of personalize this a little bit because you're right he's on the cop continuum um and it would probably say like what he does is quite morally value neutral or even a good thing right because what what does he say that he's interested in he's interested in truth right that's what he's interested in uh, so his his job is to find out the truth. And on the surface, at least, that there is a policing function to that. But really, what that scene is, is, is exposing the kind of underside of what that, you know, quote unquote, truth search is really about. It's a truth is, is not something that's an absolute truth is always contested and is always enforced with a kind of violence by the state. So it's like, yes. You want some too? Well, you you've been dishing it out happily, right? You've been you've been complicit in these systems of violence. You've been you've been complicit in these uh, in this in this kind of like perversion of the idea of what justice, truth, and reality really are. Um, so I completely agree with you. I think it's an incredibly interesting moment because it exposes the ways in which the, the monstrous is again. It's about the part of ourselves coming to the surface. Oh my God, that is such a good way of looking at it. Like, so, you're right. So much of Trent's character is his kind of conversation with the mirror and, and his inability to handle both what he's looking at and what's on the other side. And, and that, that, that cop is so much because the one, the one, okay, so there's two insurance investigations that we know Trent has completed. We get the intimation through the course of the movie that he's very high profile and very successful in what he does. So there's no doubt been hundreds of other cases. But he he busted someone who burnt down their warehouse 
who who did insurance fraud in order to buy fancy clothes for his wife and mistress, which okay, that guy's probably not the best of guys, but also that's probably also not the worst of crimes. Um, and now he's investigating the disappearance of Sutter Kane, which it turns out is uh, Cthulhu. <laughs> Well, it, but, turn, oh my, it turns oh, out so that, interesting, so it, interesting. It turns out that he's half right because he's like, "This is all a marketing scam." This is, uh, and I'm like, "Hang on, marketing is not marketing is is a kind of fraud, right? It's it is a sort of deception." And he goes, "Yeah, it turns out we were trying to do marketing. We were trying to do like this marketing stunt, this PR stunt, but it also turns out that all of this is true." <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's, it's one of my favorite things in horror where they go, ah, it's just a metaphor, but also the metaphor is completely real. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we were just trying to systematically destabilize people's notions of like epistemic certainty and their conception of reality. But we also actually did do that. <laughs> my, my, my favorite, one of my favorite scenes in this movie is when Trent finally gets back to Charlton Heston's office. Which this movie has Hayden Christensen and Charlton Heston in it, so uh, welcome, welcome to the wacky world of casting. Yeah, I, I mean, um, shout out to Wilfred Brimley as well, star of the thing. Oh my god, <laughs> yes. Oh, I love Wilfred Brimley. Anyway, <laughs> one of my favorite scenes is so Charlton Heston is playing the publisher who puts out all of Sutter Kane's work, who he admittedly doesn't read a single page of it. He's just there to make the money. Um, but he gets he gets to the office and he's like, "We've got to pull the book. The book is causing people to turn into monsters, and we got to stop it." And 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 Charlton Heston's like, "Pull pull the. We published it months ago. The the movie's coming out in a few weeks. Like, where have you been?" Oh, okay, a, okay. This is one of oh, my go favorite on, go scenes on. in the in the movie as well because he. I have a take. I have a take. Um, and I did it. I, I I feel my my mind expanding. Um, so. After Sutter Kane tells John that he has to read the new novel, John starts having these kind of dreams and blackout states mm-hmm. um, where he kind of like jumps from location to location. And that that's how he ends up in the office. And it's like, oh, this happened months ago. And do you know what I do you know what I think it is? I think this is the film. This is a this is a character slowly becoming aware of their own filmic nature. Like he's being badly edited, the continuity starts to like collapse in on in on yeah. in on itself. So this is what I mean when I say that it's not only a metatextual film; it's a meta metatextual film because it's adding a kind of self reflexive pastiche of its own metatextual commentary on the nature of cinema itself. And and I think this this becomes really darkly compelling when we extend this reading to the world in which we live, right? Because like. When when this movie came out, like your 15 minutes of fame were probably going to be a good thing if they ever came out. You'd be on a game show or you'd get a bit part on a TV series or something. But like, and this is something I've talked about before, but like I can't go a day without seeing something on social media where it's a viral post of just like some some awkward looking dude out in public with a caption that's just mocking them. And I'm like, this is this is us numbing ourselves to the prevalence of prevalence of the surveillance state. Yeah. You know, like we're, we're willingly participating in our own demise when we do this. We, we not, we not only uh, are, are into this, but we want it, you know, we, we want to, to be the victims of this terrible gaze because we, we willingly engage. 
And like, like here's, here's a kind of troubling question though, right? There's this, there's a great scene on the bus where he has a dream and Kane tells him, you know, he tries to argue with Sada Kane and say that actually, no, he's, he's in control of his own reality. And Kane says, did I ever tell you my favorite color is blue? And he wakes up and everything is blue. Like they've got blue hair. Everyone on the bus has blue hair, blue clothes. The lighting is blue and he kind of screams. And I'm like, you, you're quite right. Isn't the truly sinister thing that we kind of want that? We want the idea that there would be a kind of like cosmic order because it means that we could abnegate our own human freedom. We don't have to worry yes. anymore, right? Because somebody is writing the story for us, for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so like like my absolute favorite scene in uh, The Mouth of Madness is when John Trent at the end goes to watch the Mouth of Madness movie. Yes, I love it. I love it so much. Shots of himself and he starts laughing. And I think he's laughing precisely because of what you just said, because he realizes that he is a character in a piece of fiction and none of his suffering has ever mattered. Any of the suffering he's witnessed has never really mattered. It was written. Um, One of the characters even says he wrote me this way. I have to. Yes. But it has it has a very troubling implication because we're also seated comfortably in our theater sne- seats we're, with our snacks. We're, watch- we're watching. We're right there with him. <laughs> you know, we're we're doing the thing that he is actively doing and being critiqued for by the shape of the film. You know, like like where are we in the process of creating meeting and media here? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I, th- I, th- <laughs> I think I think that's why this film is so good at playing with the sense of time, right? Because so, so much of the film we don't see. We never see the journey back. We never see the months that go by, right? This is what films do to people. The Kuleshov effect is like a guillotine that can like chop consciousness into fragments. Um. There's one final detail about this film that I think we should talk about, which is the credits. Let's let's do it. Let's I have credits discourse for Le- for everyone. Lead the way, my friend. So we all skip the credits. That's I think a a foregone conclusion in the world of cinema. However, skipping the credits does cost us now, doesn't it? Because the very last thing we see, if you watch the credits of uh, the Mouth of Madness. Uh, we, we see your standard acknowledgments and thank yous. And of course, we see uh, the the acknowledgement that um, from the Humane Society that animal action was monitored by the American Humane Association with onset supervision by the Toronto Humane Society. No animal was harmed in the making of this film. And if you wait for a few more seconds, you will then read human interaction was monitored by the Interplanetary Psychiatric Association. <laughs> the body count was high. The casualties are, key, are heavy. Amazing. It's so good. <laughs> and and I think I think there's so much let's let's start picking stuff apart here because one this this is a meta, this is a film that is deeply metatextual. Mm-hmm. Yes. And here in the credits the, the the most the most anodyne part of a movie that's that's just a list of everybody whose hands worked on the film, right? It's a thank you to to the working class that put this thing together. Right? Uh even during that the credits are part of the movie. Yes. You know, like the, the credits pull you back in for this one and, and, and in very subtle ways, because if you're not looking for that, if you don't know it's there or you're not intently reading the credits, you're not going to see that. Mm-hmm. You're, you're just going to see the Humane Society thing and you're going to just just go blank. Right. Like so. So that is deeply powerful. Right. And like on, on top of that, 
you know, it's an intentional choice to make it the, the Interplanetary Psychiatric Association in a movie that is that is deeply in discourse with these ideas of like Lovecraftian hypersanity, as I've come to coin the term, and <laughs> madness and all of these other issues. And, and like further and on top of that, this this bleeds back into our our reality, right? Because where does this factoid show up for most people to encounter? The IMDb crazy credits tab. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, which in and of itself invites discourse on on mental health issues and ableism and like the, the, the this movie from like bell to bell is delivering knockout punches and there is no way to keep up with it. Why is it do you, do you think that people don't like to accept the idea of credits as being part of the film? Um, If you want my most scathing answer, it's classism. Right. (laughs) Hey, film Twitter talking to you. (laughs) But no, like, 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 like that's that. I think that's the most direct response, right? What are the credits? The the credits are just the thank you role for, for everyone who has supported the work of the film. Why don't we like watching that? It's because we've come to accept it as boring and not part of the movie, you know? And, and like, we have to ask ourselves some important questions of why that is. Why why don't we care about about the names of every key grip and best boy that worked on a film? You know, like why 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 do we intentionally ignore all the fucking sound people? Why 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 is it just the like above the line talent that we care about? Yeah. Even if we care about that far, right? Which which are incredibly heavy class related questions and then we have to deal with like how credits speak back to the movie that they're a part of, right? Because when, when you get to that point in the credits of The Mouth of Madness, you realize that the credits are part of the movie, you know, like like literally part of the movie. And it, it kind of, you know, like the ooze that we've been talking about this whole time, it disrupts that boundary uh, of, of where this thing cleanly begins or ends. And I'm not saying this from like the scolds perspective of like, oh, you need... In, in order to be a good member of Lenin's revolutionary filmic vanguard, you need to watch the credits and memorize the names. No, n- nothing, nothing as punitive as that. No, precisely. But like we, we need to, we need to have serious conversations of why credits are constructed in such a way that we view them as anti-artistic. And like in a way as a kind of threat to the apparent mimetic realism of the film. Oh my God, hit it. Yes, here we go. Right? You know, this idea of like, oh, well, if I treat the, if I treat the credits as cinema, as part of the film, then that, that means I have to acknowledge the fundamentally fictitious nature of the film itself, which ruins my kind of passive immersion as a consumer of a product that's been marketed to me and instead forces me to be kind of estranged from it and to reckon with the very strangeness of our of my emotional engagement with these moving images on a screen. Exactly, exactly. It, it, it forces us to recognize that more is happening here than our passive entertainment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> so we're we're reaching the end of our three-hour review of John Carpenter's Apocalypse trilogy as both individual movies, as episodes in a trilogy, as a single body of work. My God, is it, what? What would you like to say? Do you have any any parting thoughts? Um, I I suppose I think my final my final thoughts are like these these are really interesting films, and it's it's a very kind of brave move to be so deliberately bleak with so much of it. Yeah, um, and very unsparing. Like it's 
And it's done in such a way as like the final ending of In the Mouth of Madness is like, is truly cosmic. You know, the world falls apart as you see the poster for the film that you're watching on the wall of the cinema as the camera kind of glides inside and you you realize that you've been spectating along with the, the people mm-hmm. you've been watching, right? There's like cinema is this kind of like great screen of the real onto which all of our anxieties and tensions can be not resolved, but projected outwards. I, I think that's speaks to so much of these three movies. These are three incredibly powerful films that are honestly one incredibly powerful film. Mm. They, they are just a massive confrontation with, with everything you don't want to look at when you look in your own eyes in the mirror. And when you, when as a society, we collectively look in our own eyes in the mirror from, from our, our, the, for everything from the impulses of which we are ashamed all the way through to the, the, the literal construction of how we talk about who we are is kind of damned by the presence of the apocalypse trilogy. What a great place to finish. This has been a, tr- this has been a trip. This has been, we have, we have started, we have started October off on, on a high note. And I, I just want to, I just want to say to everyone listening, thank you so much for joining us for this. And also prepare yourselves. Um, me and Ash have put some thought into what we want to do this Halloween season. We always try and go big. We always try and go hard when it comes to October, the spookiest time of the year. But you have no idea what is coming. Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean, host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. <laughs>